on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Unfound Podcast channel on YouTube. Yours truly hosts a live show in which I talk about some of my personal life, I discuss recent true crime news, and I preview that Friday's episode. But I also take questions from the audience. Since I know many of you have not yet checked out the live show, today and for the fourth time, you will get to hear me answer a long list of questions I've received over the past year. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. you're hearing today has become an annual thing for Unfound. As all of you know, we already do an update episode every four months. The 11th one of those is coming out before this month is over. In April 2019, I did the first Q&A episode, but that one came about due to some guests flaking on me. It was thrown together in a matter of hours. The ones in 2020 and 2021 were much more planned, as is the one you're hearing right now. However, after conducting that program in 2019, I saw how answering questions that I get about Unfound could be very helpful to all of you in understanding what goes on here, between myself, the guests, the assistants, and you, the audience because I don't do hardly any of that during the regular Friday episodes. And although I answer many questions about Unfound and myself on Wednesday nights during the live show, many of you don't tune in. Not blaming you, you all have important stuff going on, but you really should tune in if you can. Everybody who watches the live show loves it. So today, you're going to get a sample of the live show as I go through a list of about 30 questions I've gotten from listeners over the past year. And this list can be found on the Unfound Podcast Channel's website right now. These questions will concern me, disappearances, true crime in general, but most concern Unfound. No surprise there. But first, unfound news. I continue to send out emails to universities in the hopes of talking to students. Being in Pennsylvania for 38 days kind of got in the way of making bigger plans this spring. However, I'm already lining up some engagements for this fall, mostly at schools in Florida. Next, Unfound may be going on the road within the next month. Not sure exactly on the dates and details at this moment, but the discussions have started. And when I say on the road, I literally mean on the road. When I have more solid, solider information, I'll let you know. Finally, A month after moving over to Spotify, I can now say for sure this was the right move. And really, 
I should have done this a long time ago. Where you can find Unfound. Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, Podbean, and many other platforms, especially outside the United States. Unfound has social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, join me on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Unfound podcast channel for the live show, the only one of its kind in true crime. Ask questions, chat with other viewers, and give the show a thumbs up. You can contribute to Unfound in the following ways. Patreon.com forward slash Unfound Podcast. PayPal.me forward slash Unfound Podcast. Contribute during the live show with the Super Chat. And lastly, join the YouTube membership program for the low price of 10 cents a day. I need to thank the following people for contributions to Unfound this week. Carol and K-Dog. The website, theunfoundpodcast.com. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. And please mention Unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. Okay, for all of you who are unfamiliar how this works, maybe you've forgotten or maybe this is the first time you are listening to a Q&A episode, um, I do this very much like how I do the update episodes, and of course we'll be having another update episode come out in uh, either next week or the week after, and I don't take uh, a lot of notes I have uh, this computer over to my left, which is recording everything. Of course, we have that recording the video. And then down to my right here, down here looking this direction, uh, is my other laptop. And there are a long list of questions that come from a variety of sources. Either people who um, emailed me over the, like, the last, say, six to nine months asking me questions that I thought uh, all of you might like to hear those answers, although these emails were private just between myself and the listener. Uh, questions that I've gotten through the live show. So a lot of these questions uh, have been answered on the live show. So for many of you, uh, unfortunately not a majority, of course, uh, I'd certainly like to Hope more and more people start watching the live show on YouTube on Wednesday nights. But a lot of these questions come from the live show, and since I know most of you have not seen the live show, these questions will be new to you, and to the people who do follow the live show, you're going to be going to hear some questions repeated again, and uh, with uh, maybe some same answers, maybe some different answers, you just can't tell. And then I've mixed in a couple questions that I get a lot, um, that... Everybody, it seems, this is a, these are common questions that I have gotten many times over the five and a half years of doing Unfound. But I want to assure you that I just have the questions on the screen. I have no notes. So I'm just going to go down the list. Uh, the questions are not in any particular order. It's just how I copied and pasted them from whatever source into a doc file. And we'll start at the top, and we will eventually get to the bottom. It's probably going to take some time, 
but I only do this once a year, and I, I do realize that I get a lot of questions asked of me. A lot of people contact me through whatever means, asking me about this, about that. Yes, uh, a majority of these questions uh, have to do with uh, true crime or missing persons or disappearances, but some of them don't. Uh, some of them just have to do with my preferences, my likes, my dislikes, a little bit about about myself. It's just kind of a mixture. And once again, though, in no particular order. So let's get started. And it's interesting that we're going to start with this particular question because I, this, I think, no, I think I have one other question that I'll eventually get to where uh, the question is, what do I think happened in a particular disappearance? So this is going to be the one. There will be another one uh, somewhere in, in this list. But that's really all there are. So I don't want you get, to get all excited that you hear this first question and think, oh, he's going to be uh, answering a lot of questions as to what he thinks happened in this disappearance and that disappearance. That's really not how this is going to go at all. So I just want to temper your expectations. So the first question is, what do I think happened to Leah Roberts? If you aren't familiar with this disappearance, you should probably go uh, look it up on Charlie Project or NamUs. I'm not going to go through all the particulars of it. This is not a disappearance that Unfound is covered. Maybe one of these days, um, certainly. I would never rule that out. Uh, just about any disappearance out there is, uh, of course... Eligible to be covered on Unfound. But Leah Roberts, she uh, was alone. She took off in her car. And eventually her car was found wrecked in the uh, northwest part of the United States. It had gone down an embankment. It was eventually found. She People knew, kind of knew that she was missing. And when her car was found, it looked like she or somebody had lived in it for a while. Many of her things were outside of the vehicle. She was missing, and I think she had a pet with her, maybe a cat with her. The cat is also still missing, and this is still an unsolved uh, disappearance. Uh, there's a lot that has been written. I know that other podcasts have covered her disappearance. Maybe even the TV show Disappeared. Back when it was still on TV, it had covered her disappearance possibly. I somebody asked me, "What you know? Can you answer this? What do you think happened?" I realize there are all sorts of uh, different rumors, thinking that somebody else was driving her vehicle, and and you know, did she take off to start a new life? I, I have to tell you, maybe this is not going to surprise most of you. Unfortunately, I think Leah, what happened to her is probably what happened to Jason Landry. Going along, I don't know why Jason Landry wrecked. I guess some people might think that he um, might have been on something and missed that turn and wrecked. Or something was going on with him mentally, certainly possible. And I think that we have to look at Leah's very much the same way. That she got into this wreck and hit her head. Something was going on with her. My belief, it would not be crazy to me to think that it, that she wrecked her car 
And in getting out, maybe the cat was all scared. It ran off. So whatever pet or pets that she had with her might be afraid of of a car wreck. And I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that. You can see car wrecks on YouTube where there are pets on the in the vehicle and the car wrecks. And the person finally gets out of the car, the, the dog or cat or whatever. So, you know, freaked out. It goes running away. So it would not be... Uh, would not be unusual for me to think that that is what happened with Leah. Now, why she wrecked, I don't know. But I just don't think that there was any foul play here. I think that more and more uh, we're realizing that this is a common type of disappearance. Not as common as um, men killing women and making them disappear, like in many relationships uh, that we've covered on Unfound, certainly not as common as that. But this um, kind of uh, type where you have somebody in a car and the car is wrecked and people come upon the car and the person isn't anywhere to be found, it it just seems like uh, we're coming more and more aware that it is something that happens. And to my knowledge, in these types of disappearances, rarely is it some type of foul play. So I don't know what was going on with Leah Roberts. I'm not an expert on her disappearance. But to answer the question, I think she got into this wreck. Maybe she felt like she had to run after her cat, try to find out where her pet took off to, and then something happened. Or... She hit her head, didn't know what was going on, stumbled away, uh, died somewhere. And even despite searches being done, she still hasn't been found yet. And we know that that is very common. So I, 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 I get the perception sometimes that all of you think uh, when I do release ideas about my theories for disappearances that mine tend to be somewhat can I use the word boring or very um, very mundane or very common? I just a lot of times just go with the percentages. And I think that's what the percentages say for Leah Roberts. All right. Uh, next question. A question that has nothing to do with true crime or unfound or, any, or anything else. I got the question, what do I read? I'll have you know that I don't do a ton of reading. I used to. Uh, Before I started uh, doing Unfound and uh, it taking over my life, I did quite a bit of reading. Uh, I I love to read Mark Twain. I think the last novel that I read before I started doing Unfound, because it just, you know, it just... Um, it's one of those things where you only have so much time in a day or a week to do any reading. Well, if I'm going to have any time to read, it's probably going to be uh, on missing persons cases, reading news, reading, uh, going to NamUs, going to the Charlie Project, uh, going to my notes that I've taken uh, from having conversations with people. That's what usually takes up my reading time. But before I started doing Unfound and was reading uh, maybe a couple novels a year or something like that, Uh, The last novel that I read before I started doing Unfound was a book called Darkness at Noon, and the author's name was Arthur Kessler. 
Uh, this is a book that I believe came out in the 1940s. And it had to do uh, – takes place in the Soviet Union and a guy who is on death row. And he was originally um, one of the people instrumental in the Ru- Russian Revolution. But now he find even though the revolution was successful and, and the communists took over and everything, and even though he's uh, still a communist, he is now on death row for not um, – kind of a new breed of revolutionary came in and kicked out the old revolutionaries. And so um, he's on death row, and uh, it's what he's thinking about as he's there and how he's communicating with a couple other prisoners who are in the same situation he is. And uh, he's due to be uh, executed at noon, and that's why it's called Darkness at Noon. It is uh, considered to be one of the great novels written in the 20th uh, century. So if you've not read it, uh, I, you might check it out. Of course, it is not light reading. But I love, I love novels like that. Uh, but I love Mark Twain. Uh, within the last 10 years, I've read um, Tom Sawyer and some of his other works. But these days, uh, if you're asking me what I read, it mostly has to do with disappearance information, disappearance news, missing persons cases. For example, um, I, uh, you know, for the unfound nows that I do every month, I will go to Web Sleuths. If there is something that has been started, a form has been started on one of these recent disappearances, I'll check out what people are saying there. That's the kind of reading I do, and uh, maybe I do a little sports reading, but no books anymore. Uh, maybe I've – mostly what I'm doing these days, if I'm doing anything, I'm listening uh, to podcasts, but they're not true crime podcasts. I just don't do a lot of reading these days, but I have read a lot of well-regarded books and novels, but uh, Unfound Now takes up all of my time, <laughs> it, it, you know, for that. Um, just, it's just, uh, if you don't realize it, uh, Unfound is a 24-7 job for me, pretty much, unless uh, I'm disc golfing. Okay. Karen says, I have a question for the live show. This is, of course, a question from the live show. Do you think the recent trial of Steve Pankey will be good publicity for the podcast? This is a question that came um, up uh, in early November after of 2021 when I had gone to Greeley, Colorado and back. Uh, now that it's six months pretty much since I've been there. Uh, has it been good publicity for the podcast? I would say that that's hard to say. Uh, Unfound has been on 48 Hours twice. I'm not going to get into that again. So I really don't know. I, 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 it's hard for me to tell from the numbers if anything has changed. And being that I've switched podcasting companies since October, I've gone from Podomatic to Megaphone, which is Spotify, and I now know that those Podomatic stats were not true, it's just hard to say. What I will tell you, probably the biggest thing that has come from the uh, 
me being involved in the trial is that I have this thing going with a TV production company in in uh, in England, United Kingdom, Great Britain, whatever we want to call it, and they are trying to put together a TV series regarding Janelle Matthews' murder and the trial and how Steve Pankey uh, was hung jury, all of that, and the guy got a hold of me, and I talked to him the first time back in late January, early February, and they're continuing uh, to try to see if they can generate uh, some interest to get this series made. And if they do, I'm hoping that I can be the host of it or something like that. Um, so that's probably, as far as publicity goes, that has probably been the, the bigger publicity item that has had anything to do with the trial of Steve, Pan- Steve Pankey. Now, on that note, there might be another Steve Pankey trial before we're done here in 2022. I really don't know as of the recording. I'm recording this portion of the podcast on April 11th of 2022. I, re- I, I really don't know if there's going to be another trial. I haven't heard anything. I've heard there might be. Uh, if there is and I'm allowed to talk about it, I surely will. So, uh, And maybe that will be publicity for myself and Unfound as well. I really don't know. But the biggest thing I think that has come from being involved even bigger than the 48 hours and some other – a couple things is um, this TV production company contacting me. And hopefully we can make uh, something happen here. But as I've said many, many times before when I've talked about the topic of t- TV production that – it's very tough to get stuff on TV or anywhere else, despite there being Hulu and Netflix and Paramount Plus and everything else. It's just as hard as ever. Next question. Ed, do you think the ground-penetrating radar could be used on missing persons cases? Well, uh, it absolutely is. Uh, I, I think that we have uh, talked about ground-penetrating radar more than once. On Unfound, uh, of course, it, it doesn't work because we only cover it, – it hasn't been successful, I should say, because we only cover unsolved disappearances. Uh, but I think in maybe at least one disappearance that we've covered, we now know it's a murder of Zoe Campos. Ground-penetrating radar, radar surely should have been used on Carlos Rodriguez's uh, property the first time around – in 2013 when Zoe was murdered because, of course, that's where she ended up being found. So it so to answer the question from the listener slash viewer, uh, it is used. I just don't know um, how successful it usually is. Uh, my perception is that ground-penetrating radar really does not find that many missing people. I think it's a great tool. I think it's uh, it's certainly technology that works. It is real. Ground penetrating radar is used, of course, m- mainly for other things besides trying to find bodies in the ground. It can be used, of course, if we're going to be digging anywhere. It's useful. We don't want to dig down and hit a water pipe or an electric line or a gas line or anything like that. It's one of the most common uses for it. Certainly is great technology 
just don't know how much of a difference it has made for missing persons cases. Surely it has been used, and a few people have been found since ground-penetrating radar was invented. But that is a very, very, very low percentage. Um, it could it be used more? I, I, I would say yes, but first of all, you have to have places to search. You have to have good reason to be in a location to even use it in the first place. So that's what I would say. Next question. What is the one thing you would change about yourself and one thing you would change about the podcast? See, I do take tough questions on there. In fact, I don't think it was uh, Q&A episode volume three, but I think it may be Q&A episode volume two. I somebody even asked me why are you single and I, I I answered that. You can go back and check that. In fact, I think I started that answer out by saying, "Well, how much time do you have?" <laughs> but what is one thing you would change about yourself and one thing you would change about the podcast? Uh, as you can tell, uh, for those of you who are watching this, you know that there are no edits in this, and so I'm just taking these questions as they come. Uh, there's no splicing in or anything, so I, I get to think about this in real time. What would I change about myself? Uh, I realize that, uh, like any human, I, I have a lot of flaws, so I, I guess I can only... Uh, pick one. Probably what I would say is that it's it's much too easy for me to be very antisocial, uh, to be very non-social, to um, just be holed up in this condo here for days at a time, never being in the company uh, of another human. Uh, and, and it's maybe just a little bit too easy for me to do that. I, I don't know why that is. I think people who have met me, uh, listeners who have met me, I think my friends who have known me for a long time, my trivia team, disc golfers, they know that I'm a very friendly guy. I get out there. I, I think I'm a good sport, uh, good sportsmanship. I congratulate people. Uh, when I go to trivia, I like all those people. We have great conversations and everything else, but – Trust me when I say that it is no problem for me to just stay in this condo and never go anywhere and not drive my car for days and days at a time. And I'm not so sure that that is a good thing. Maybe some people would think that it is a good thing, uh, that somebody who can be alone with his or her own thoughts and nothing really dark and gloomy come into them uh, and – because I, th- I know that a lot of people do have that issue. That's why you know, a lot of people fear being alone, fear being uh, cooped up for too long. It's one of the reasons that solitary confinement in prison is considered to be uh, the worst punishment, not being able to be around e- e- you know, other prisoners, I guess, I- in the yard or in the cafeteria or whatever else. Um. You know, so some people might think it's really a strength. I guess it is, but I, I would even say for myself, looking at myself, maybe I take it a little too far. So that's probably one thing that I think I could change about myself just off off the top of my head. 
Now, one thing that I would change about the podcast, you know, um, I, I guess if I'm going to just have to answer that, I just wish it was the most popular true crime podcast in the world. It's not. Don't get me wrong. Unfound does very well. It's we have to remember it's a kind of a niche or niche market, only doing missing persons cases. Whereas, for example, my friend John Lorden, he covers a wide array of different types of crimes or incidents. We might call them uh, Generation Y. I know uh, many of you know uh, that I kind of know the guys over there, although I've not spoken to either of them in, in a while. That they do a lot of different things on, on so on, on their show, so maybe they have a you know a, a bigger blanket. More people uh, can be interested in because a lot of people just don't find missing persons cases to be that interesting, whereas they might find serial killers or UFOs or solved murders or you know things like that or bank heists or art theft, which it could be. Those or other podcasts cover while also mixing in missing persons cases and other things. Whereas we only do one thing here, and um, probably that limits the 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 size of the audience. And I and I realize that I knew that getting in. But if you're going to ask me, what would I change? I'd I'd love for us to, for Unfound to be the number one downloaded podcast in the world. Uh, but I know that there are restrictions given the way uh, the format of the program uh, that's probably not possible, and that's fine. But uh, that's what I would say. It's just not a – I could say that, but I also know that that's probably never going to happen once again because of the limitations. But uh, I always wanted to be a specialist in something because I think that that's the way to progress, to uh, really make uh, – make uh you know a mark in anything that you're doing uh you can look at other professions or athletes whatever you want to talk about tiger woods he's good at golf i'm not sure he's good at any other sport jack nicholas he was good at golf i'm not sure he was good at any other sport that he could have been a professional they were specialists or they are specialists so that's why i decided to be a specialist in missing persons cases so that's what I would change about myself. Uh, that's what I would change about Unfound because I would never change the format or anything else. I mean if I wanted to do that, I could. I'm, I'm the only one who controls this podcast, and none of that's changing. I wouldn't change anything about the way we do our business here at all. So moving on, um, next question, what – when listening to your interview with John Lorden, so this is going back to like a question I got back in November of 2021, you spoke of talking with TV shows. What is the status of that? Well, conveniently, I just spoke of um, – I do have an agreement, a contract uh, with a company in England. Uh, they're working on trying to get a Steve Pankey or we should say Janelle Matthews series done. That's going on right now. And I think it's safe to say maybe within the next month or six weeks, I'm also going to be having another conversation with somebody else regarding a, a TV show just because I think this person and myself, our paths are going to cross once again uh, to talk about that. But that's really 
you know, that's really all that is uh, going on right now. As I as I've stated before, I will say it again. Say it again. I don't pursue these opportunities. I have enough to do. Uh, and every person, every time I've ever had a conversation with anybody, they've found me one way or the other. I mean, this goes back to like even the second year that Unfound existed. That uh, people contacting me, talking about this, talking about that, fiction show, nonfiction show. And I guess by that point, this point, I've maybe spoken to six, seven, maybe eight different people or companies about it and just nothing's happened. I don't feel necessarily bad about that because it doesn't look like it's happening for anybody else either. So, And I can be a bit prickly when it comes to that topic anyway because there's just certain things that need to be done in a certain way. And if it's not done that way, then I really don't want to have anything to do with it. I, I realize that there are podcast hosts, not just in true crime, who start a podca- podcast just because with the hopes of getting a TV show and doing this and a big-time YouTube channel and, and, and everything else. Uh, uh, that's just not why I got into this. And so uh, if it happens, if it ha- it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But that's really all I can say regarding any TV um, stuff right now as of April of 2022. Let's move on uh, to the next question, and maybe then I will take my first audio and video break. It seems you have been particularly careful about people using last names or telling what they heard other people say lately. Have you gotten in any trouble for slander or has there been some laws brought to your attention that would put you on eggshells regarding the subject? Uh, This is, once again, I think a question I got late last year. Nothing, first of all, the standard, uh, nothing has changed regarding my attitude toward names. And uh, as I've said many times before, whether we mention names, full names, just first names or fake names or no names at all, it all comes down to the guest. The guest is the person who has to live with this. I mean, I certainly live with all of these disappearances myself. I, of course, care about all of these families. I want these disappearances solved, but I don't live there. I don't live in Greeley, Colorado, where Janelle Matthews was murdered. I don't live in Canadian Texas where Tom Brown died by whatever means. I don't know any of the people who might be suspects or witnesses or anything else. So the odds of me running into any of these people is very, very low unless they come after me, which maybe is not that crazy given that I have gotten some nasty emails over the years. But these people, the guests are the one who are in those communities – it's their family that that is hurting. They know these people, and so they're the ones who have to make that decision. Whatever decision they want to make or they make is fine with me because they have to live with it. So I don't know exactly what was going on when the person uh, – this is like six months ago I got this question. I don't know exactly why this person – 
It very well might have been that we just had a few episodes in a row where no names were mentioned. That's certainly possible. I would have to go back and listen to those interviews from six months ago to see. Um, but my standard has not changed. Now, as far as if have have I gotten in any trouble for slander, I will have you know, for the record, Unfound myself, nobody affiliated with Unfound, no guest has ever been accused of anything. Been sued, slandered, defamation, anything ever in five and a half years. And I would like to think that the reason is because we just play it as straight as anybody can. As I continue to say, we don't go after people on Unfound. We just talk about what happened and what the facts are, what we believe to be, or the guest believes to be the facts. And if that happens to make certain people look shady or guilty or something like that, I don't know what we can do about that. Now, I've had people after an episode has uh, come out and said, you know, you shouldn't be using my name and And it was like somebody who last saw the person. Certainly, we are legally allowed to say to the public who that John Smith last saw Jane Doe. There's no law in the United States against that. Nothing at all. So, and have I been threatened uh, a few times? Yes. Have my guests been threatened with slander? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yes. Nothing has ever happened. And I just – I don't believe I've done anything in the last five and a half years that would warrant any of that. The only change I would say that I've made is early on I used to ask the guest, what do you think happened to your missing loved one? I got away from that because once again, it's, that starts to feel to me like a slippery slope, and I stopped doing that. You go back and listen to this – First so many episodes, you'll hear that question, and then all of a sudden you won't hear that question anymore. Why it changed, I don't even remember. But I stopped doing that. So instead what I do, as you hear me, and when I do the summary of the case at the end, I just come right out and say what the popular belief is regarding the family, and I just keep it simple like that. And then we don't touch that again. In the, we don't touch that in the interview. So nobody's gotten in any trouble for slander, and no laws have been brought to my attention. Back in about November of 2019, I did go speak to a lawyer about slander. Uh, he listened to a couple of the episodes at the time and gave me some pointers and things, and that was about it. And the good thing was that this lawyer, he admitted that he was once defamed, and he actually went to court and won. So this is a guy who was has been in you know that situation where he felt he was defamed somebody came after him and he successfully won his case so it was a great lawyer to talk to about this and he just kind of said i i just here's the things that i see but i wouldn't really you know that might be a concern but i really you know as long as you don't go any further than that i don't see anything to worry about so that is the answer to that question about names and slander and laws brought to my attention. That is the answer. So I'm not going to take uh, the first video slash audio break in this Q&A episode, Volume 4. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Okay, next question. Lately, it seems there has been a lot of discoveries of missing persons' remains inside vehicles submerged in water. What are your thoughts, Ed? What do you think is a probable explanation for the vehicles going into the water, drunk, uh, under the influence while driving, suicide? Also, if you don't, ha- you don't have to name the case if you don't want to, but do you think any unfounds missing persons whose cars are missing could be found submerged in a body of water? Well... First of all, that's already happened. Esther Westenbarger's, uh, she and her car were found in a retention pond in Kokomo, Indiana. That disappearance took about 10 years to solve, and it was solved by luck. So that has already um, happened. Now, as far as the remaining disappearances in which vehicles are also missing, I think it's... um, the Braden um, disappearance and Donald Irwin and Jeff Joseph. There may be um, one or two more in there. Uh, you know, it's just hard to say. Uh, Jeff Joseph's, of course, his uh, sister, and I think I could be inclined to believe that Um, There was foul play involved there, so it very well may be that Jeff and his vehicle are in a body of water somewhere, but maybe not by accident. Donald Irwin, uh, there were allegations of foul play, at least at the time when Unfound covered his disappearance way back in, I think, 2018. But I think to maybe a lesser extent than in Jeff Joseph, so I could be open to the idea that he and his car ended up in a body of water somehow. As far as um, the other disappearance that I mentioned, which are the disappearances of Jansen Brewer and Daniel Braden, seems to me there could be uh, foul play in that one too. That, of course, still doesn't mean that they and that truck, Scotty's truck, didn't end up in a body of water somewhere. Also, much more recently, uh, Audrey Heron is a disappearance we covered with uh, she and her vehicle missing. And then um many much 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 more recently within the past month we covered the disappearance of Harry Milligan in which he and his car are still missing from 1984 i think what we have to remember about these kinds of disappearances and what this person of course is asking about is many of you know the group adventures with purpose and my understanding is now there are other diving Groups or companies that are now getting involved, starting YouTube channels. So it's just not Adventures with Purpose that are doing this now. uh, That are looking at disappearances where people and cars have gone missing and looking at the routes those people might have been taking and then going to see if there are any uh, large enough ponds or lakes, rivers that should be investigated. And... 
my impression, once again, I do not follow everything that that any of these groups do, but my impression is that each one of these that have been solved so far, there's no allegations that there was foul play. That these people and their cars ended up in the water due to an accident, or maybe it could have been a suicide, certainly possible. Drinking and driving, falling asleep at the wheel. We might even be open to the idea that a deer jumped out in front and they swerved, and certainly possible. With uh, the one that we know about, uh, with Esther Westenbarger, I, I think the belief is that she probably shouldn't have been driving that night, was on the wrong road, blew that stop sign, went right into the water. I think there's every reason to believe that she was drinking and driving, didn't know what she was doing. So we have to be open to that with all of these other ones. So I guess what I'm saying is that the odds are that people, when they go missing with their vehicles, uh, it's probably not foul play. Can't totally rule it out. We still have to look at who that person was and what that person was doing and what – where he or she said they were, you know, the person was going. I have to look at all of that as well. But I don't think any of these people and their cars that have been found so far, there is a belief that there was foul play. Whereas with uh, some of Unfound's disappearances, it seems there could be. That could be a situation. Jeff Joseph certainly... Um. Harry Milligan, uh, once again, we just covered it, and it seems to me his family believes there was foul play. Jansen Brewer and Daniel Braden were two uh, guys that were a little bit shady, especially Daniel Braden and the guy's truck that they were, you know, they were in. He's certainly a shady character, so I'm not sure that that was uh, an accident either. We just don't know. So... And I guess what I'm saying, also saying, is that when you start thinking that some of these might be foul play, then you can't automatically start thinking logically. Well, because Jansen and Daniel were, you know, allegedly headed this way, and there's a river there, that is where we're going to find them. If there was foul play, they could be anywhere. The vehicle could be anywhere. So, and maybe we think of made about it, maybe with Eric Franks's disappearance in which um, he and his vehicle were missing f- for a long time. Then his car was found and it was in somebody's garage the whole time. That very well may be the situation in all of these disappearances that I've mentioned, Harry Milligan, Audrey Heron, the rest of them. Maybe they're all foul play and their vehicles are, have been sitting in some gra- garages all these years. Certainly possible. I don't know how much money I would put on that. But... Uh, So we just have to remember that all of these disappearances that are getting solved by cars being found in water, all of them are not foul play. We also have to remember that, at least according to Unfound's stats, people going missing with their cars and the car and the person going missing for a long time, it's only 2 or 3% of disappearance as a whole. It's a very, very, very... Small percentage. Now, why does it seem this is seems to be happening a lot recently? Uh, because somebody's found a way to make money at it. Just to be honest. 
uh, up until YouTube came along and up, you know, and up until the way I understand this all happened is that the guy who started Adventures with Purpose kind of just happened upon this. I don't know if there was any necessarily any plan to make this into something, but he got into it. And now it's a very, very, very popular YouTube channel and a, a lot of coverage and everything else. Um, so when that happens and you can monetize that, then you can continue to do it more and more and more. Uh, whereas in the past, there's no money to be made in people going out and jumping into the water and looking for cars. It's just... just I'm not saying it was done. It was certainly done once in a while, but it was all volunteer work and people would get to it when they could. It was nobody's job who was getting paid to do that. And that's what's changed. So when it can be monetized and people have a, what you might want to call the profit motive for doing that, doing it, then suddenly um, people will start putting the time in and, uh, Start looking at maps and start talking to people. That's just how all of this works. And uh, I personally have nothing against that. I guess it's better than it not getting done at all. But it just seems to me that the – the um, of course, we've had scuba gear and, and sonar and everything since like World War II. What had to catch up – was the business side of that. And the internet um, finally has made that possible, even though the internet's been around for 25 years. It wasn't until recently that somebody was able to put that all together into something, and th and that's that's fine. So that's why it's happening. It's not that people have gotten smarter. It's not that the technology of going into the water has changed. It's not even that People have a better understanding of those certain, you know, those kinds of disappearances anymore. It's just now that people uh, have the time to really get into it because they now can pay their bills by doing it. They don't have to be accountants by day and scuba divers by night or something. So that's why um, I think this is uh, um, this is all changed. And I am inclined to believe that all of the ones that have been solved so far are some sort of accident or maybe on purpose, but not foul play. Could be very well be a suicide. Now, that's a pretty, pretty grisly way to drive your car into the water and the water's rising and everything. I don't want to think about it, but um, I don't think – I've never read anywhere, heard anywhere that any of these have been solved. There's a belief that it's foul play. And the reason that is, is like I said, uh, when you start talking about foul play and a killer getting rid of a body and a car, they're not going to do it in a place that is going to be very logical. That people will say, oh, yeah, that's probably where the person is. They're going to put it, uh, the car and the person in a place, maybe not even in water. Maybe they push it off into the woods somewhere, something like that. Or if it does go into the water... Uh, it would not be in a body of water that anybody could just look at a map and say that that's where it is because that's what's going on here. All of these that are being solved, they're just looking at where the person last was. They look at are there any rivers and bridges and creeks and ponds around and say, let's go search those. Well, surely a killer is not going to put uh, 
You know, if you're if uh, John Smith is supposed to be driving by the East River and the killers kills John Smith, he's not going to put John Smith and the car in the East River. So there you go. All right. Uh, next question. Kathleen Moore, body found by accident in a place that had been searched purposely before. Why? I think this is a fascinating topic. I, I don't know if anybody else finds uh, this um, topic fascinating, but I've talked about this before, maybe on the last Q&A episode, but I'm going to do it again because I do find it fascinating, and I know that I've written about this on one of the Patreon blogs. And that is the... Uh, I always use a disc golf example for this, so bear with me. Anytime I can try to put disc golf into disappearances, I do. In disc golf, we play on courses that are not like ball golf courses. We play around a lot of bushes, a lot of trees, a lot of woods. We're throwing through paths in the woods or fairways that are only maybe 10 to 12 feet long, down a fairway with trees on the side and all sorts of thorn bushes and everything else. Very common uh, on a lot of the courses. And so a lot of times you, if you throw a disc and you hit a tree and it goes off in some direction, you have to go into the bushes where you don't want to be to find your disc. It's very, very common. And every disc golfer out there, if he or she has been playing for just even a week, has lost a disc in some woods or bush or something like that. It's very common. And... I've actually had this conversation with other disc golfers even before Unfound started is why is it that you can throw a disc and you throw it maybe goes 200 feet down here, hits a tree, goes off to the right. You go down to that area and of course the brush is like brown and green and but your disc is like bright red and you don't see it. And you'll be in there. Your friends will be in there. You're looking around. You all saw where it ricocheted and where it went. Didn't, didn't of course, see it land, but saw it going in that general direction. You know how fast it's going. You go to that general area. You got four guys looking for it, and you can't find it. No matter what you do, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour, even though it's red, or some bright different color, pink or orange, really should stick out. You don't see it. Even though all of you saw that it go and went in that direction. Finally, you, you give up. You keep playing. Whoever lost the disc is ticked. I've been, there by, by my, I've been there myself. But then like a day later, two days later, three days later, or a week later, you'll get a call. This has happened to me. It's happened to every disc golfer out there. That somebody who played the course maybe an hour after you did or the next day was on that very same hole, threw a disc, hit a tree, went into the into the bushes. That person goes looking for his own disc, finds his, but he also finds yours. The one that you and your friends couldn't find that you knew where it was, you knew the direction it went, you knew what color it was, you knew how fast it was flying, you had all those people there, you can't find it, then somebody comes along the very next day or within the next hour, 
doesn't even know you were on the course, doesn't know you threw the disc, doesn't know what, surely know what color it is or anything else, but he finds it and all of you couldn't. How is that possible? It defies all logic that exists on the earth. But it happens all the time. Every disc golfer out there knows exactly this. They've been, And we've been on both sides where you lose a disc and a person a day later calls you and says, yeah, your disc was there and you're thinking, well, I looked for it for half an hour, couldn't find it. And I've been on the other side. I've found somebody's disc somewhere. And then when I return it to the person, because we put our names and numbers on the disc, the guy will say, I was looking for that thing for a half hour, couldn't find it. Where was it? So I've been on both sides. And being that disappearances are my thing, I, of course, can't help but see the similarity between a bunch of people looking for a missing person, believing that this missing person went into these woods, a hundred people go in there, can't find the person, and then a year later, ten years later, a hunter who doesn't even know that John Smith disappeared in those woods will be tromping through the woods on the first day of buck and happen upon John Smith's remains. And this happens all the time. And I see the similarities between that and the disc golf situation that I just described. How can this happen? Why is this? There has to be a reason. Uh, and I don't believe it's, be- it's, not, it's not because people aren't motivated. I've looked for my own discs, haven't been able to find them. I've been with friends who are looking for discs. We can't find them. We are motivated. Even though these discs only cost like 15 bucks, we are motivated and we fail. Searches go out. I'm not going to say that all of them are motivated. You just can't tell when you get a bunch of 100 people. Surely everybody does not have the same level of motivation. But surely a large majority of them want to be there. They want to help. They want to do the right thing. And they fail too. Then somebody comes along, doesn't know anything about the disc, the remains, anything else, doesn't care, or anything, succeeds. And so the only conclusion that I can come to is that actually knowing – this is going to sound totally counterintuitive, but it's the only thing that I can think. At some point when you go to search for anything – a ball, a disc, a person, at some point knowing where that person or that ball or that disc disappeared is actually a hindrance and not a help. I know that is so bizarre. And what in, in being that I've I've only ever looked for one person one time that was Stephen Kocher, and in fact the anniversary just passed a few days ago, uh, that But I have a lot of experience looking for discs and failing. And the problem I think you have in both situations is that logic tells you the disc, the person must be in this area. But what happens when you don't find that disc or that person in that area The logical thing to do is to start looking elsewhere. Yet, the other part of it it can be logical both ways. If you don't find something in this area, it, it pays to look elsewhere. 
However, another part of your logical mind thinks it can't be anywhere else because you saw this uh, disc go in this direction. Or if it comes to a missing persons case, there are footprints going in this direction. There's no reason to look anywhere else. And so you can actually know too much. And so you think that you want to look elsewhere because you failed in this particular area, but you can't look somewhere else because you can't deny what you just saw or you can't deny the evidence in a missing persons case that is right in front of you. That at some point, I don't know when it is. I don't know if it's an hour in or a day in, you know, when it comes to disc golf, a minute in, 10 minutes in, I don't know when it is. But at some point, knowing what you think happened can actually be a hindrance and it can actually restrict your thinking. That's the, that's the only conclusion that I, I really can come to regarding any of this. Uh, and so when we just narrow that down to missing persons is that here's the person's car. There's no allegation of a foul play. Um, and in fact, if we want to use a theoretical example, this person left a suicide note saying, you know what? I, I feel like ending my life and I'm leaving and John Smith's car is found. A gun is missing and it's by the woods and there are and everybody knows that he probably drove he had it in his note. I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna go out into the woods and I'm going to shoot myself. I don't want to be here anymore. And this is very similar to what happened, speaking of disc golf, to a player who uh killed himself uh late last year. Although I don't think he left a note, but there I think there were other signs. Very sad. So everybody sees the car, sees the woods, and everybody goes in there. But he can't be found. Even though you have the note, even though you have the car, even though you know the gun is missing, even though everybody knows that he was depressed and he said he was going to do that, and there's no belief that he would be lying about this or fooling anybody, still he's not found. And I think it's just because, and this happens, this happens with Eric, his last name pronounced Pratt, P-R-A-C-H-T. He went missing. His gun went missing. Everybody went out and searched. Couldn't find him. Years later, they did the exact same search to find him. I, I think it's just because it just, uh, you know, with Jason Landry, how far could he have walked? How far could he have gone? I think it's just because at some point, uh, knowing Every you know, thinking you know everything you need to know actually gets in the way of actually succeeding. I know that sounds so bizarre and it's very counterintuitive and it's very um I don't know if it's Zen or something, but it's certainly part of maybe a philosophy very philosophical way of looking at life. I'm sure you could uh, apply that to a lot of different things. Because it happens so often that I do not believe that it's just people not really caring. There is something else going on. And uh, that's the best that I can do. Uh, you know, implying it to the disc golf example. Knowing where somebody or disc went some, at some point can become a hindrance. You're looking. You think you should look elsewhere. You should be open to different other possibilities. But because 
you saw the disco in this direction. That's where it has to be. But what could have happened? After it went out of your sight, it could have hit another tree and bounced back the other way, and you just didn't know it. Certainly possible. That happens all the time. So when it comes to missing people and going to look for them and and missing the first time around, I think it's a combination of just a, a lack of really understanding you know what goes on and i and maybe it could be that people get in their idea well you know this missing person's just going to be out in the middle of a field somewhere and that's that's rarely the situation but i i think that there's uh, i'm still working on it as you can tell cuz i'm fumbling around for some words there's something to be said about almost knowing too much about a disappearance to be helpful in trying to solve it, especially when it comes to uh, doing any searches. It very well may be that it's better, um, and this happens so many times, it may just be better, better to know less and to just know the generalities. Jason Landry, well, his car was... Uh, you know, damaged hair and maybe not know anything else, not know that, it, you know, all his clothes were in the street and not suspect that he might have hit his head and not and not know a lot of things. Of course, now that we do know about Jason Landry's, that's just an example. It may be better from a, a search standpoint to not know those things because then people start to get ideas in their heads about where he could be. And then when they go to those places and do those things, they don't find what they're looking for, and they get stumped. So sometimes maybe knowing as much as people do about these disappearances when it comes to searches, it may just not be helpful. You start to get preconceived notions, as maybe I think we do in disc golf when you start going to uh, look for disc. Oh, that disc is going to be right out there in the between the bushes. It's going to be so easy to find. You get down there and you don't find anything. And after a few minutes, me, I don't mind losing discs so much because I have so many of them. But some people are, are very close to their plastic. And so they start to get very nervous. And, and that never helps anything. Well, I didn't find it in two minutes. I may not get it back. And people worry about that. But I think there's something, there is some sort of relationship between all the searches that I've done for discs that have failed, even though I thought the disc was right there, and these searches that are done for missing people, where it seems like the person should be found in 10 minutes and the person isn't found for 30 years. And when the person is found, the person's found by accident. I think that there is a there's a relationship between those two uh, um, circumstances. Even though they seem like they could be not further or farther from each other. So I know it's a long answer, but I I, I think that's probably one of the best questions that I'm going to answer in this Q&A because it's very important. Searches are very important. Uh, they continue to fail, get all these people together, and they find nothing. And once again, later, a year later, 10 years later, as the question says, that person is found right in the area that was searched 
How can that happen? Something that has to be fixed. Moving on, uh, this is the other question that I was asked uh, about a particular disappearance and, and asking my opinion on it. What do I think happened with the Springfield Three? Of course, uh, a woman and her daughter and then the daughter's friend, they're all there together. They go missing. Um, you know, People show up, the, up at the house and maybe don't realize that they're missing and there was uh, a bulb from an outside light right outside the front door that had been broken or screw broken or taken out or something like that. I didn't write down all of the uh, particulars in here. How can that happen? Their cars are still there. And my understanding, the girl that was there, that was the friend wasn't even supposed to be there that night. Uh, Certainly, uh, it is a disappearance that is rare, and I think it's the reason that so many people know about uh, these three women being missing. Three women going missing uh, is rare, uh, as you would probably suspect people going missing all by themselves is choice number one, most common number one. Choice number two most common is two people going missing together, and then... Uh, people who disappear in threes, a group of three going missing all at one time, is very, very, very rare. And in fact, I would state that people, uh, you know, three or more people dying in a plane crash is more common than three people going missing at the same time altogether, friends or family. So we have to really look at that. We have to understand that. This is a very rare type of circumstance, uh, type of disappearance. So the circumstances under which they disappeared must also be very unique. And so even though we might default to well, this has to be a relationship thing or uh, you know, a rape um, I'm not sure you can automatically go to that. Now, I will tell you, right here in the Tampa area years ago, uh, before I moved here, uh, a woman, her daughter, was it both of her daughters? It was, was it a daughter and her friend went missing. And then days later, one of them was found uh, floating in Tampa Bay, just south of me. And then eventually another one of them was found floating in Tampa Bay, and, and the other one was eventually found as well. They were all dead, and they had all been murdered. And eventually uh, a guy's name is Oba Chandler. Uh, you, you know, and the way they caught him was that the mother had, had written down something regarding his boat. And here the three were out somewhere. They ran into Oba Chandler. They wanted to go out and take a sunset cruise. He said uh, he had a boat. He took them out, and he took them out there. He bound them all up, threw them into the water, and they all drowned. Um, I didn't write down the specifics, but uh, I don't think that Oba Chandler had ever killed anybody before. But he took these women out and killed all three of this adult woman and these three girls. Maybe they were teenagers or something like that. But you can understand that's rare. So that's what we have to be looking at for the Springfield 3. I guess what it also shows 
is that it is possible for one person, in particular one man, to take three women and kill them. Now, of course, the circumstances with the Springfield Three and these women who were murdered here in the Tampa area by Oba Chandler are certainly different. This is something where they were looking for a sunset cruise. He just happened to be, be there. If they had talked to anybody else, those three women would all still be living today. Instead, they ran into Oba Chandler. This is obviously not what happened with the Springfield Three. Obviously, somebody showed up at that house. So then we start thinking... Is it possible for one man to have lured them out of the house, uh, taken them out of the house by gunpoint, something like that? Nobody heard anything. And I know there's been a lot of rumors. This disappearance is, what, 30 years old now or something like that? Um, it's just hard to imagine to me that one guy it, – it, it very well could be this was all a mistake – that you know, some guy ended up at the house. Maybe he was mad at the mother. Maybe he was mad at one of the daughters and didn't know that the daughter's friend was going to be there. And he just had it. It's all hard to imagine. In addition, if this guy or men really had, you know, the hatred for one, two, or all of these women, why didn't they just murder them right in the house? Hard to understand. Is this a burglary gone bad? Uh, did somebody not know that they were all home that night? And, you know, what are we to make of this light that was screwed or broken or, or whatever it was? And, of course, what made everything difficult is the next day all these people came over to the house, polluted the, the house, the scene, everybody's fingerprints. Uh, and, it, and it, of course, has made investigating this disappearance uh, very, very difficult you know so what do i what do i think happened you know i'm just explaining how i look at this 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 really just seems to me you know my voice cracking there that i can't believe that all three of these women were the targets if it was just a a, a daughter and a mother and daughter together, and they both tech. And then I think we can see that maybe it's an estranged husband or an ex ex boyfriend, and he shows up and um, you know takes both of them. But being that the friend was there, and this would have added in maybe a surprise element to all of this. It just seems it just seems to me that. Um, that that would just would not be my first choice. Really, do, you know, don't know what to say. I, I just um, this is one of those disappearances. I think where if we were to cover it for Unfound, probably we would, as we usually do, or as I usually do in talking to the guests. Usually, things come out that not necessarily secret, but that maybe issues that. Other people or reporters might just push to the side because it doesn't seem relevant uh, because they don't have any experience really covering disappearances. Maybe to a person like me who has covered 250 of them would take a look at that and say, oh, well, that's really something we got to talk about. It might seem like nothing to somebody else, but to me, 
it might be something, oh, oh, that's I've not heard that before. Let's talk about that. That could be the key. That's the way I feel like about the Springfield 3. I think that's the reason there are so many different um, rumors out there where really when you get to a unique disappearance of three people, whether men or women or a combination of them, There aren't that many choices because, once again, it's so unique. Uh, It's the disappearances where it's just one person. Those are the ones that usually, of course, it could be four or five different things. But then when you get to two people going missing, depending on the relationship, the choices get narrow. But then when we get to three, it gets very, even very narrow. And it's like I said, it's probably a very, very unique reason. But given that, as I've said many times, relationships are the number one cause of disappearances, I guess that's what I have to default to in this. Uh, What I would say is that it stretches my imagination that one guy pulled this off. Given that it was at home. Oba Chandler with those women, totally different situation. But being somebody really decided to go over there and knew that at least two women would be there – and then in the end ended up taking three tells me probably that one more than one guy was involved. And it had something to do with one of them at least. Which one? The, the mother, her daughter, the friend. I just don't know enough about uh, the uh, disappearance to say. But I still think even though I, I'm breaking this down and saying that Well, you know, relationships, you know, that's pretty common. My guess is there was more going on in this disappearance than just this. This might have been a a relationship disappearance with all sorts of mitigating factors that somebody or group would choose to show up at somebody's house, a woman's house and daughter there in the middle of the night and and do that. This was more than just a relationship type of disappearance. That's the best I can say. Certainly love to cover the disappearance uh, sometime. Uh, maybe we can make that happen. Um, I know that I've never co- tried to contact anybody in any of their families. Maybe Emily has and just hasn't been successful. Maybe I need to put that on the list of my things to do. So now uh, I'm going to take uh, my second break uh, for this recording of the Q&A episode volume four. Okay, uh, let's get back to this. Uh, The next question for this Q&A episode. And if you hear a little background noise, um, there's a little construction going on in in the building. And uh, that starts happening in April because all the snowbirds are here and then they leave. Then all the owners come in to check in (coughs) to see what damage was done. I'm one of the few people who actually lives year-round in this building. Okay, Um, the next question is, in my perspective, how many disappearances do I believe are an abduction, drug-related, family issues, or just unknown? So I guess this person is asking, um, you know, what would be the pie chart? If you could imagine a pie chart with little slivers being percentages, which is which? Before I can answer that, I do have to say that Back in 2016, when I started Unfounded, somebody had told me five and a half years in 
that we would cover as many disappearances that seem like walk-offs, I would have been very surprised. It's probably one of those points that I've become very educated on, and it may be why now here in 2022 that I default to that choice more maybe than all of you do. I'm not saying you're right. I'm not saying I'm right. But it's much more in my consciousness now than it ever would have been back in 2016 before I started covering disappearances on a technically a weekly basis. But you know I do this every day. So as far as that pie chart would go, the walk-offs where people, let's just say walk-offs would be under that, Category would be um, uh, suicides, mental illness, um, maybe some sort of diabetic episode. Somebody is supposed to be taking their medicine and isn't. I wouldn't necessarily call that a mental health episode. I'm, I wouldn't, of course, would not call that a suicide issue, but it's kind of in a category all on its own when people don't take their medication, not so much. Maybe for their mind, for their body, maybe it's no different than people who have to take heart medication and don't, maybe something like that. But it seems to me with diabetics that if you miss that medicine on a a daily basis, if you miss just one day, it can be very, very dangerous. I'm not sure you can say that about people with heart issues. I just don't know. I'm, I'm not a doctor on this program. That's just my perception. But if you were to put all of that, all of those types of incidents where there would be no foul play, but a person wanted to kill himself or herself, mental illness, some sort of medical event, or maybe we could, being that I've already kind of talked about it in this Q&A episode, somebody uh, like Leah Roberts, the first question, hitting her head possibly and walking off not realizing what she was doing, Jason Landry, maybe there's some other disappearances that I've talked about or we've covered that could be like that. I got to tell you, it's, it's, I think like, I don't know, 20%. And then, um, I think foul play would be maybe 70%, 75%. And then the rest would be some type of accident. So, in, that then gets back to what I've already talked about with Adventures with Purpose, other groups, going out and finding peoples in their cars. Those seem to me to be all accidents, but I just talked about how it's such a small percentage. So that's where that small percentage – I think in the end it all kind of works out percentage-wise where you have way over 50% of disappearances are foul play, whether it's a husband and wife or you know, some sort of uh, you know just an out-and-out murder. Uh, of friends, or I guess we could put overdoses that are covered up in that category. All of that put together uh, could be easily 70%. Then you get the walk-offs, the mental health issues, um, uh, health conditions. Uh, I guess hitting your head would be a health condition as, as well. All of that would be like 20%, and then that other 10, 5 to 10% would be some sort of accident. Like Esther Westenbarger, that was an accident, it seems. Maybe she did have a heart attack. 
on the way home, but she was on the wrong road, and it seems to me she was just drinking and driving. So that would then be, in my opinion, an accident. That would be in that very small percentage. Um, how would I classify Crystal Morrison's? Is that an accident? Is that a health-related uh, health related event? I think it was a health-related event. So that would go in the 20%. Of course, Zoe Campos, Andrea Bowman, Tyler North, those would all go in, in the murder category, that big 70% category. So I think that is the way, the best I can do breaking it, it, it all down. Um, specifically in the question, there was uh, drug-related issues. That would be a combination of people killing people with hot shots, people covering up overdoses that were accident. I wouldn't put that in the accident category because there is an effort to cover it up. So you have to put that in the in the foul play category, uh, in my opinion. Anybody's going to do that. There could have been certainly something else going on. But that's, I think, as uh, specific as I can get uh, at this point for the purposes of this Q&A episode. I'm sure if, that I would, if, were to, if I were to write a blog on it, I could break those percentages down even further into – health-related issues, that specific percentage, and suicides, that specific percentage. But for the purposes of this Q&A episode, about 70% foul play, 20 to 25% walk-offs, combining of suicides, health conditions, mental health issues, and then that rest of it is just out-and-out accidents. All right, um... Next question. Ed, what do you think is the reason why some police departments are so mean and rude to the families of the missing? Well, you know, I'm not let's not get crazy here and say that all police departments act like that. They don't. All right. I think unfound is not necessarily pro-police, it's not anti-police. I think that uh, it's very realistic about the conditions and situations that police departments are put in with these disappearances. Uh, I also have a bit of sympathy for the investigators who are put into these situations because they have no education, they have no experience. So it'd be no different than in any person in any other uh, profession where – that person is asked to do something even though they're supposed – quote-unquote supposed to be an expert in that area that they're confronted with something that they've never been confronted with before. It would be no different than an engineer who is uh, – builds bridges but then is given the task of designing a bridge over some sort of waterway or something that's never been done before. And where they're going to have to put the pilings and the supports for the bridge. It's some new material that he's never had to deal with before. And that that engineer, no matter if he has experience, it's still no experience in that particular area, that specific type of situation. The person, the engineer, isn't going to necessarily know what to do, even though he or she has designed many bridges before. 
So we have a situation with police departments. They certainly do a lot of investigations of rape, domestic violence, burglary at 7-Elevens, car thefts. But disappearances, we have to remember, most disappearances are solved very quickly after the paperwork is filed. And most of them are solved on their own, meaning either the person is found deceased uh, in a very short time or the person is missing and then comes home. I've given the example of the teenage girl, 17-year-old girl who goes off to Vegas for the weekend with her uh, 25-year-old boyfriend and doesn't tell anybody and her parents are all crazed. And then she comes back and everything goes back to normal. This is common. That's what I mean by a disappearance solving itself. Whereas these ones that we cover on on Unfound are, are long. As you know, the average age of a disappearance we cover on this program is around 17, 18, 19 years old. And police have no experience with those. In fact, any disappearance that goes longer than a week, most police departments are going to just shrug their shoulders and say, I just don't know what to do. So when it comes to police departments being mean and rude, that could be uh, a a very natural human tendency to be very defensive. It has nothing necessarily to do with their profession and what they've chosen to do with their lives. It's just they're being confronted with something. They don't have answers, but they feel insecure about it, and so they may say some things they shouldn't. In addition, though, if you want to go the opposite direction, the the fact is is that their experience that they have with disappearances, all of these cases that are solved within a week, actually hurt hurt their knowledge because then they start thinking every disappearance will just solve itself in a week. And when one doesn't, then they get defensive. When a family says, all right, my daughter's been missing for two weeks. What are you going to do about it? And here that whole time, the police department was poo-pooing the whole thing when the parents came in originally. Because, well, we know that she'll be back in a week. As to be specific, that's what the Orlando Police Department told Jennifer Kessie's family when she went missing, which, as we all know, was crazy. Should have never said it. But that's done often. Um, so what What do I think the reason is? I, I think it's a lot of things put together. I think it's human tendencies. I think it's uh, a fact of um, police departments, investigators not wanting to admit that they made mistakes, that they should have taken this disappearance seriously uh, from the beginning. It's a lot put together. What I don't – maybe this is what I should also say. I do not attach this to any sort of corruption or anything like that. I'm certainly willing to believe in some of these disappearances that police officers were involved. But except for Robin Abrams, I'm not sure – and I suppose maybe some of you out there, Tom Brown, I'm not sure how many of these disappearances have anything to do with a police department as a whole. So I, I don't – I want to take that out of your uh, thinking on this. We we hear about police departments not taking it seriously, disappearance seriously, and it has nothing to do with corruption. It has everything to do with them making mistakes, them being human, them having no experience, them having no education, and them acting very defensive to all of it. So there you go. 
And I'm trying to change that by speaking to schools. <clears throat> and we'll just have to do it uh, one school at the time. Being that I'm the only person out there who has this idea, I- I'm just one guy, and there are many schools with criminal justice programs, so you can only cover one uh, one class at a time. I'm doing what I can. Moving on. Next question. We'll get away from true crime for a little bit. Favorite food besides chicken wings. The reason this person says this is because I've become known, at least on my personal Facebook page, uh, to talk about how I love to cook chicken wings. And in fact, I just cooked chicken wings within the last few days. I, I go and buy the wings. It's really weird, given inflation, that chicken wing prices have not gone up. It seems maybe there are less chicken wings out there, but I've been buying chicken wings to cook, not actually cook chicken wings, but you go to like the what is that the, the deli or the you know, whatever they call it, where the chicken wings are wrapped up and they're cold. And then of course you take them home and chop, you know, cut the the that third part that you don't eat out of it and. And I cut them apart and put them in oil and, and fry them. Um, the price of chicken wings have not gone up, despite everything else going up. So I don't know what that is. But because I've been doing that for about two years now. Anyway, favorite food besides chicken wings? I will tell you that, and I think there's another question down here eventually where uh, people, somebody asks me um, things that I don't eat that it's weird. And you'll see how weird it is. But some of my favorite foods, I love steak. Been kind of getting away from steak. Now, steak has gone up in price, so I have uh, stopped buying that. But uh, I love steak. I am a meat eater. Uh, I've dated a few vegetarians in my time, but those women did not change my eating habits at all. Uh, Unlike that that comment that uh, Samuel Jackson makes in Pulp Fiction. Um, I love steak. You know, I love vegetables. I can't eat a lot of fruits these days because I have a FODMAP issue uh, with my body. And uh, I've become lactose intolerant. So there are now a lot of foods at the age of 51 that I could not eat, uh, that I could eat when I was 31. So that really limits me. But I love fruit, but I can't eat most of it any anymore. Either I'm allergic to it or it gives me some... Pains in my midsection, but you give me some good cooked vegetables like broccoli or like peas and mushrooms put together, or I can't eat asparagus even though I love it. Uh, but uh, Brussels sprouts, uh, cauliflower, I love all that. I, I know it sounds like, like such a geek, but I love all of that. I love uh, popcorn even though I've been kind of going away from that because it's hard on my teeth. And given I spent so much money on my teeth this past year, I'm more uh, – I'm careful, more uh, a lot more careful about that now. But I love good popcorn with some butter on it like I'm, – I'm telling you, uh, movie popcorn, even though I haven't been to the movies in a long time, movie popcorn is like – I could just get to be like gain 200, 300 pounds on that. I'm serious. Um, What else? I can't – I love chocolate, but I don't eat it as much anymore. been watching myself on that. I love Cheez-Its, but once again, watching myself on that because we know that uh, 
that's not very good for you either. Uh, but, you know, regular foods, chicken wings, I love just chicken in general. I'll just get the chicken breast, put them on my George Foreman grill, cook it up, get some vegetables. That's spectacular. I love Publix Diet Iced Tea. Publix is the grocery store chain here and store chain here in Florida. I know it's in other states, but they don't have them in Las Vegas, for example. So if you're in Las Vegas, what's a Publix? It's your Albertsons or Smiths. Uh, I just uh, love Publix uh, Diet uh, green iced tea. I love celery with peanut butter. I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Those are spectacular. You know, those are some of the things. So, uh, yeah, I love sushi too, but you can't eat that too often. It's too expensive to eat all, you know. So I'm, when you ask me about my favorite foods, these have to be things that, of course, I like shrimp. Of course, everybody does, but you can't eat it all the time due to the cost, at least for us commoners, us, uh, you know, you know, us in the proletariat. Um, but for everyday items, that's probably what you'd find if you came over to my place and looked in my refrigerator. That's what you're going to find. You're going to find chicken wings. You're going to find chicken breast. You're going to find vegetables. You're going to find peanut butter. You're going to find jelly. You're going to find rye bread because I can't eat wheat bread anymore because of the FODMAP issue. Um, those are some of the things. Cheez-Its, unfortunately, once in a while. Popcorn, unfortunately, once in a while. I like eating uh, just peanuts. Crack them out of the shell. I love that. Cereal, but I have to drink oatmeal with it. So you'll find Wheaties. With, I'll drink the, eat that with oat milk. That's what I eat uh, on a daily basis. But if I got crazy, if I were to hit Powerball, then I'm sure my eating habits would be different. So there you go. But yeah, chicken wings. I just love to cook them up. They're so good. Uh, and I'm not a cook at all, but I decided a few years ago I was going to try it. And now it's certainly become a thing for me. All right, moving on. Um... This goes to a specific uh, disappearance that Unfound covered last year, almost a year ago. Hard to believe, but here we go. Do you have a theory on why Brian Schaefer snuck, I love that word, it's like a Western Pennsylvania word, snuck his phone into the woman's bag? How does that correlate with his disappearance? Now, if you don't know what this person is talking about, uh, there was a show that came out, TV show that came out in November of 2021, covering Brian's disappearance, and in it, uh, somebody noticed something uh, that then eventually got passed uh, on to me, and I took a long look at it, and I actually did a video of it using the DVR on my TV uh, to explain that in the wider view of Brian Schaefer standing outside the Ugly Tuna with those two girls – the, the video that is not cropped, it does seem to show that he slips something, a phone or something, into this woman's purse. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go to the Unfound Podcast channel on YouTube and go back to November of 2021, and it'll be labeled, labeled Brian Schaefer video, something like that, I'm sure. And you will see what I'm talking about. Do a nice diagram there using the DVR button as best I could. I think that was like uh, Thanksgiving week that I did that. 
So how does that correlate with his disappearance? Well, how it correlates is that eventually, uh, as many people who are experts on Brian Schaefer's disappearance, I'm not. But his phone ended up having that one weird solitary ping that came out of nowhere days or weeks after he went missing. And it was in a wasn't in Columbus, Ohio, It was in another town still in Ohio, but not like a suburb of Columbus. And people have always wondered, well, what's going on there? It seems like somebody turned his phone on for just a moment. Well, the reason this is um, noteworthy is because this woman who's standing there in that video who had seen – who had that purse that seemingly Brian Schaefer dropped something into it, her mother lives in that exact same town. Where his phone pinged weeks later, however long later it was. Is that a coincidence? What are the odds of that? I'm sure some statistician could figure out what are the odds of that happening. In addition, even though everybody I think knows that Brian lived not too far away from the Ugly Tuna, he could easily walk there. These two women that once again he was standing with outside the Ugly Tuna... At least the one who had the purse lived even closer to the Ugly Tuna. And this, this then goes into the, the fact that Brian's phone seemingly continued to ping around the Ugly Tuna area after 2 a.m. that early morning that he disappeared. So people could start putting together the idea that he slipped his phone into her purse. You know, and I'll get to how this could correlate to anything. He slips it under her purse. She doesn't know. She goes home, puts the purse away, and uh, my my perception of women is they have three or four different purses, so it may just be that she put that purse there and didn't use it for a while. That was like her fancy. That was her going out on the town purse in contrast to her everyday purse, in contrast to her work purse and her school purse and going to the gym and whatever else. So then she puts that purse away, his phone's in there, and then the battery dies, and it stops pinging. And then she gets that purse out again weeks later for some occasion. Doesn't, like, dig through it or anything, but she then goes to her mother's her purse there. Then she starts going through her purse. She finds this phone, and she's like, what's this? And it's uncharged. So she charges it up. It comes to life. It pings. And all of a sudden she goes, oh, my gosh, this is Brian Schaefer's phone. And she, of course, at that point surely knows that he's been missing. And I don't think it's crazy to think that under those circumstances that somebody might just want to make it all go away. How are you going to explain you have Brian Schaefer's phone and he's been missing for weeks and you, you're really going to tell us, the Columbus Police Department, that you didn't know that you had his phone and it was in your purse the whole time? How are you going to explain that, young lady? And so that's then why she decides, you know what, I'm just going to make it all go away. It's a theory. I think it's something – now, she she may be listening to this and saying that's completely insane, that that's not what happened. The problem is that the fact about the phone pinging in that town is true. The fact is that her mother lives in that town. That is a fact. The fact – you know, I sound like Phil Klein now. Uh, the, 
the the truth to use a different word, although truth and facts are are technically different things. Um, it is accepted that phone, that his phone pinged in the general area of the ugly tuna even after 2 a.m. that night. So why would he put that phone in her purse? Maybe because I think we can come up with a few different reasons. Maybe one, yeah, he wanted to leave his life and putting the phone in her purse would cause people to go off in this direction. He's going that direction. You know, and I'm, look, I'm speaking to the camera now, but uh, get the, the investigation to go off to the in uh, in a um, leftward direction and he's going in a rightward direction. So it's some sort of misdirection play on his part because he's already decided he's leaving his life and by putting that phone in her purse that he can do that. And at the point that her phone, his phone would be found, he wouldn't even care anymore. It's certainly possible. Another idea though is that he put that phone in her purse because he wanted to see her again. So he thinks, I put my phone in her purse. Then the next day, uh, I'll be like, man, I can't find my phone. I, I, you know, I can't figure it out. But he exactly he knows exactly where his phone is. And then somehow he gets a hold of her and he's like, you know what? Could you just check? I know this is like the weirdest question in the world, but could you just check your purse and – I've lost my phone. I just can't figure out. But, you know, we were a little drunk that night. Maybe I put that phone in your purse for some stupid reason. Of course, he did it on purpose, according, at least according to the video, if you believe that. Then she finds the, the phone, and she's like, I do have your phone. Man, that must have been a crazy night. And then they arrange to meet up again. So he put the phone in her purse so he could see her again. I... Guys do weird things like this. I've never gone that far. But guys do weird things when they want to meet women. And of course, maybe too many of do things that are certainly illegal, immoral, unethical. Uh, but most of the time, it's just kind of cute stuff. Um, and so I could certainly be open to that idea. That At least at that point, on that night, outside the Ugly Tuna... That he wanted to see her again, couldn't figure out a way to do it, so he's going to put his phone in her purse and then claim he was so drunk he couldn't remember. She finds his phone. She's like his savior. They're all feeling real good feelings flowing and everything. They meet up and do whatever. Guys do these things, and dare I say it, I think probably women have maybe done a few crazy things to meet uh, men or women, whatever kind of relationship, straight, gay, I don't care, but when people want to meet other people because they're attracted to them, they'll usually come up with very creative ways to to uh, run into them or meet them, something like that. So that also goes through my mind. But of course we know that Brian went missing before this uh, meetup could happen if that's what happened, if that was his plan. I have to tell you that I'm more inclined to believe the, the former – that he wanted to do some sort of misdirection. And at the Patreon blog, I've written what I think happened to B Brian Schaefer. I do not believe there's foul play. I don't believe it was an accident. The fact is, is that Brian Schaefer, if you look at what was going on in his life before he went missing, 
he seemed to be a very troubled young man to the point that he showed up late for his own mother's funeral. As I've said many times since I found that out and since my mother died in 2018, had I showed up late for my mother's funeral back in early December of 2018, my dad would have killed me. He would have assassinated me probably right in front of everybody, okay? Things were going on with Brian, and I just don't know why people um, ignore it. And it doesn't sound like those would have been the type of, types of things to go away if he was deciding to leave his life and go be a surfer or something and somewhere. There you go. So I think it correlates in the way that this was, in my opinion, some sort of misdirection play on his part. All right, moving on. Um, next question. Uh, my question is, how do you feel knowing that Steve uh, Pankey most likely lied in a majority of the interview you did with him? Surprising or did you already suspect it? And after all that has happened and the 48 hours controversy and having to testify, do you regret doing the interview in the first place? First of all, I do not regret doing the interview. Uh, I, I think uh, even though I cover missing persons cases, that is what I do. That is my specialty. It's become my specialty. It, more in general, I am a reporter. And that's the, the decision that uh, myself and my assistants came to back in 2019 when he wanted to be interviewed. And I talked with them about it because interviewing a, a, a suspect, or an alleged killer uh, is not something I normally do. But in the end, I decided I am a reporter. If he wants to be interviewed, I have the expertise to interview him. I got to craft the interview the way I wanted. He did not evade in any questions. I'll get to the lying in a moment. But he looked at the interview uh, outline, did not argue with any of it. And we did it. And so that was good enough for me. And dare I say it, uh, just maybe to get uh, crazy with this, let's just say that the uh, president of Ukraine wanted to be interviewed and he picked me. I would do that. Not because of the attention or anything. Of course, there would be a lot of attention. But because I would have a responsible responsibility as a reporter to do that as a person in media to do that. Uh, and I, I, and that's how I, I would look at it. And if any opportunities in the future, you know, for Steve Panky like characters, I'm not going to say it's going to be an automatic yes or no. It would have to be under the same situation where the person who's going to be interviewed would have to go along with what I want to do. Otherwise I'm just not interested. If you're going to come to me, then I get to set the ground rules if I come to you because I want to interview you as is usually the situation with the episodes, then the guests get to determine the ground rules. They get to determine what we talk about. They get to determine whether we mention names or not. Now, I may get try to change their mind on certain things, but ultimately I can't get them to say things they don't want to say. Whereas if they are, they're coming to me, then it's a little bit different. Then I think that, okay, well then – you're under my roof now, and that's the way it was with Steve Pankey. So I do not regret reg uh, doing the interview. As far as the lying, I really—I I mean, let's just be serious. That 
I think I tried to play it straight down, straight down the line as I could after I interviewed him. I think what I would usually say is if he told the truth in the interview, then yes, he certainly didn't do it. But I think there's reason to believe probably that he did a lie about some things. And now we know at least what he said under oath during his trial that he did lie, that his father-in-law never did come over and make that comment to him. And, and other things that he said in the interview that I had with him that were lies. And I would also say, though, that some of them were certainly lies. I think some of the other um, things were comments were just uh, a perception issue. Um, For example, he said that the police got in his face when they went and served the warrant and then the uh, badge cams were released, and that's not what happened at all. But that's what he said. So is that a lie or did he perceive it that way? It's for you to judge. He might have felt threatened. And so he he might have felt fear. That doesn't mean that that fear was rational. Uh, Sometimes fear is very rational. If somebody's going to push you off the Grand Canyon into the Grand Canyon, then you're going to have a great fear in that. Other things that we fear in our lives are certainly irrational. But in Given Steve Pankey, um, certainly he'd lied about facts, but some of the other things I think we just have to dismiss them as some sort of perception issue. Um, did I already expect suspect that he'd lied about some things? Well, just I think after doing for doing this for a while, I, I would have never thought that everything that he said was totally. The truth. So once again, to read the question, how do you feel knowing that Steve most likely lied in the majority? I would not say that he lied in a majority of the interview. He lied about some specific things. Now, granted, they're important, but he, I don't think he lied in a majority. A majority would mean 51%. He did not lie through 51% of the interview. I would say about 10% of what he said were lies. Now, it's a very important 10%, but it's not a majority. Um. So I guess I kind of already did suspect it. That still doesn't mean that he killed Janelle Matthews. In fact, I'm still uh, up in the air about that. And after all that, would I do that again? I would under the same conditions, but not under different conditions. So that's the answer to that. Okay. Next question for the Q&A episode. Could you give us any pointers on how we could research or find information to help the families of the victims? One of the biggest ways I think the average person can help is to get very versed, first of all, very versed on using databases online. Now, you may have to pay for a good one. I know times are tight. Gas prices are up. Inflation's up. Who knows where the markets and and your 401ks and everything are going. Who the heck knows? But it, if you're interested in disappearances, then it pays to have a good membership to a good database. People Looker, whitepages.com. You do not have to have multiples. I have multiples, but this is what I do. But you should have one. Because what can happen is you'll hear names or you'll be looking into disappearances and you'll hear sus- – you'll read suspects' names. You'll hear suspects' names 
and you can go look them up, see what their criminal, see what they've been doing over the over these all these years. Have they had criminal? Have um, have they had any felonies since the disappearance happened? Where were they living at the time? Where who were these people living with? You you can um, get their addresses at the time of the disappearance. Were they living with anybody? Maybe that person knows something. And I and the reason that comes to my mind is I just did that recently with a disappearance that we've not yet covered on Unfound, where a woman goes missing and she was in the process of divorcing a guy and she was confronted by this, her soon-to-be ex-husband's lawyer. And this woman didn't want to sign the papers. Well, the lawyer was also a woman and it turned out eventually that this lawyer ended up marrying the ex-husband after this woman went missing. And the family could not um, remember this lawyer's name because it's like 30 years ago, just kind of through the sands of time. Um, So I was able, being that they did, of course, know the ex-husband's name, I was able to go into this database, find out where he was living in the early 90s. And what am I doing? I'm trying to find out. Was there a woman who lived with him? At was a, a woman attached to that same address at the same time? It turned out there was. It turned out I got her name. It turned out that she did have a law degree. It turns out that she was a lawyer in that state at the time, and I was able to track her down. Things just as simple as that can help a family. Just one little more piece of information. So I gave that information to this family, and now. They're going to track this woman down. She's not in that state anymore. She's moved to another state. She's still a lawyer. And in fact, she is uh, a legal counsel for a college in Texas. And uh, I'm wondering if the college knows that she used to be a guy, uh, married to a guy. She mar- I wonder if they know she married one of her clients, which sounds to me like not the most, most ethical thing to do. And I wonder if this college knows that he, her ex-husband, that she was helping out a guy who might have caused the disappearance of the this, dis- you know, the disappearance of this woman that their fa- her family contacted me. I wonder. So, but the only way you can go and do all of that is if you really know how to think through that. Granted, yes, you need the database, but you have to be able to really logically go from one step to the next step to the next step to the next step. And the only way you can do that is having access to a database and just mess around with it. Um, just you know, do a search on yourself. See how accurate the database is going back and listing all the places that you where you've lived. And, you know, your work history and all of that, just, you know, like sometimes people Google themselves, uh, do a database search on yourself because that that's the easiest way to tell whether the database is good. And then when you can get a feel on how it explains your history as a human, then you can start looking up other people and start deciphering their histories using your own as a template. That is probably one of the best ways uh, to try uh, to help families. It's just something that comes to mind. And uh, the other thing is that knowing how to really, really, really do very creative Google searches. 
trying to track down information, trying to track down track down other crimes that might be connected to um, the disappearance, uh, trying to find out are there other disappearances in that area at the same time? Could it be a serial killer? All of that helps, and that all goes a very long way. May not seem like a lot uh, to you, and I think too often the public just automatically wants to get to, we got to find out who solved this disappearance, and that's certainly important. But there's usually like about 200 things that need to be done before that, and it's learning those 200 things. Uh, You have to learn those other 200 things probably before you get to the solution. If you even get to the solution, so it's um, maybe you could compare it to uh, sporting events. All we really, you know, the Masters, Scotty Scheffler winning. All we see him out in the course for four rounds at Augusta. You don't see all that behind the scenes work that he's done. Of course, athletes talk about what they do behind the scenes, but rarely does the public get to see it. What's all that behind the scenes work that makes winning the Masters possible? And so when it comes to disappearances, solving that, solving them, it's all that behind the scenes work that makes solving them possible. There you go. Okay. Moving on. Uh, what have you found most difficult about covering multi-jurisdictional cases? You know, I, don't, I cover those just like any other. Um, I don't speak to too many police officers for this podcast for many reasons I've detailed. I'm not going to get into those now. Yes, Rich McHale recently was on 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 Unfound, and I, I think that was a spectacular interview, of course. But I don't think it's necessarily spectacular because he used to be in law enforcement. It's spectacular because he's taken such an interest in it. He's written the book. He knows uh, the family. He's been there. He's gone there. It's a lot of things. And and maybe once in a while it's nice to have somebody on the program that's maybe a little more objective. I, I love having family members on the program. I will continue to have family members on the program. I want them to come on the program. But it is interesting once in a while to have somebody that's maybe a little more objective, can, you know, is looking at the disappearance from a step back, from maybe not as emotional point of view. Maybe we also get that when Anthony from Crime Blogger 1983 is on the program, Heather Grotman. We get that from them as well, and I think it's a nice mixture. Um, but when it comes to law enforcement, multi-jurisdictional cases, what's difficult that I don't find covering them difficult because I just go about my business the same way. Now, for families, it's certainly difficult. Because as I've explained on the live show, I've written about this and I've talked to college students about it, is that there's a hot potato situation. One that comes to my mind right off the top of my head was Eric Alvarado. He was a resident of Texas, but his vehicle was found in Arkansas. So what happened was that his car is found there, Arkansas State Police... We'll see it's a Texas license plate. So what do they want to do? They want to give it to Texas because why? Well, it's a Texas resident. We don't, you know, we don't know what happened here. And there's no proof that Eric was ever in Arkansas, just his vehicle was. Somebody else could have driven it over there. 
He was last seen, at least the last sighting that is believable is in Texas. So Arkansas wants to give it back to Texas. Whereas Texas is saying, hey, wait a minute. A crime could have been committed here. The car is in your state. The most likely possibility is that Eric was driving it. He's the person who most likely drove it. Maybe he got carjacked, but there's no proof of that. So you should just take for granted that he was driving it. So the disappearance actually happened in your state. And back and forth they go. Hot potato. Nobody wants to take... Nobody wants to take... um, responsibility for it. And it's disgusting. And I don't think this has anything to do with any legalities. It all has to do is they just don't want more work. Um, Whereas, especially maybe in a disappearance like that, whereas if it's some high profile thing, uh, disappearance of a little girl and that that the 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 department thinks that by solving this, you know, be a feather in their cap and look how great we are, then it might be different. Then the Arkansas Arkansas State Police might be like, heck yeah, we're gonna solve this and we're gonna get in the national news. Or Texas is like, no, 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 no. Uh, we'll take care of it. That little girl, she lived in Texas with her parents. We'll take care of it. It would be totally different. But because it's an an adult. I'm sure very quickly they found, figured out that um, Eric uh, had a felony record. Maybe they discovered that he was uh, growing marijuana illegally in Texas and all that, and then their interest just could not go down faster. But this jurisdiction issue is common, and it usually is a hot potato situation. I don't want the potato. You take it. I don't want the potato. You take it. Uh, very difficult for families. It's horrible. Uh, for me, though, I'll talk about it. I'll complain about it. I will make sure all of you know about it. But it really doesn't make it that kind of disappearance more difficult for me to cover. Moving on, uh, this, this is a question that I've gotten uh, many times. Uh, and uh, I think I've included it in the first three Volumes of the Q&A episodes, and I will include it in this one. Is there a specific reason I started Unfound? It's just a bunch of stuff that came together. I I know stuff is maybe uh, undermining the importance of all of it, but by calling it that. But People come to uh, – what is the saying? You will find your destiny destiny on the way to avoiding it. It's kind of what – I think that's kind of what happened to me, that having an interest in disappearances and mysteries has always been with me. And I think maybe that's – I don't think that's odd. I think a lot of people uh, – there's a reason that Columbo is so popular. There's a reason that Law & Order, the show, is so popular. There are reasons that these shows that are mystery-based are so popular. Mystery novels, Agatha Christie. But probably maybe I just denied that a little bit and gone into other things. Maybe I should have gone into the law enforcement. Yeah, with this hair, they would have loved that. And – but then it – I was – uh, as a little uh, kid in search of, then it was cops, 
And uh, my best friend's family had a scanner that, that fa- and just fascinated me, seeing what's going on out in the community. Cops doing this, cops doing that, police officers. And um, then it was Unsolved Mysteries, and then the internet came along, and you could actually start to look up. People started to write thing on, things on the internet about a lot of these disappearances that were happening, mysteries and unsolved murders. And Wikipedia came along, and a web sluice, and then, of course, the Charlie Project, and NamUs, and all of it. And then finally, the technology of podcasting caught up to all of it. The the interest, uh, the technology caught up to my interest, and along the way, I also developed some skills, some talking skills, some writing skills, some public speaking skills, uh, knowing... Uh, what it took to put something together that was a production, it all just kind of came together. Now, I know for other people, John Lorden, uh, although he has kind of an entertainment background too, which I did not realize until I did that interview with him back in November, a little bit of the same bit for others. I just don't know. As I stated earlier here, that I think a lot of people get into true crime podcasting because they just want to get their own TV show, that it has nothing to do with uh, their passions or their interests. Uh, they just do it because they're opportunists. I guess the world needs those people too. But that's not uh, how I got started. In fact, many of you know that I did a podcast before this one that only lasted like five or six episodes. And the only reason that got started is because this woman who I'd gotten to know online talking about some different disappearances, I just said to her one day, we should do a show. We should do this. And this was before I ever knew how big the true crime community was and all the podcasts and everything else. Because I continue to say, I've never listened to one episode of Serial. And Serial is the podcast that kind of uh, it's accepted put true crime podcasting on the map. I've never listened to it. <laughs> Crazy, I know. But we started doing that show. didn't work out. Uh, and really, when it comes to that, I work better alone anyway. So is that is that uh, a specific reason? I think the specific reason is because all of that that I just explained just all finally came together five and a half years ago. That was the specific reason. And then along the way, I, I've certainly been helped by my assistants. I've been uh, – I was uh, helped by um, my uh, now-deceased mother, who was the biggest fan of every, anybody of this podcast. So a lot of other things uh, that went on to keep it going that keeps it going to this day. But the specific reason is because a lot of different aspects of my life and the world just kind of all finally intersected. That's how it happened. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to take my next break, and then we'll come back, and the next question will be, um, will Suzanne Morphew ever be found? I'll answer that in just a few moments. Okay, back from that break. Will Suzanne Morphew ever be found? I, I don't know if I'm any better at predicting these things than anybody else. I think from an odds point of view, she will be. 
But I only say that because most missing people are found. However, we know that there will be missing people who will never be found. Uh, As long as the earth exists, there will be disappearance cases that will never be solved. It's, it's, It's horrible. But I think that's what we know. I've stated many times that... We're 250 disappearances in, but I've been saying this since about Disappearance 100, that I know that there are disappearances that we've covered on Unfound, that if I could live to be 100 years old, maybe I'll get there, maybe I won't, that these disappearances will still be unsolved. It is horrible. It's very sad. But that's what the stats say. However, the odds are that The odds say that a large majority of disappearances are solved. Now, granted, the longer you go, the lower chance that has of happening. So Suzanne Morphew, I don't know the exact date that she went missing, but it was, I think, what was it, Mother's Day? Was it two years ago, I think? The odds of her being found today are X. If we go another year, uh, the odds of her being found will be X minus some percentage. And then after that, X minus a bigger percentage. X minus a bigger percentage. The longer you go, the more you're going to deduct from that X. And the odds are going to get lower and lower and lower. I'm not saying we'll ever get to Powerball odds, but the odds, the longer this disappearance goes... The longer she is unfound, to use the word, the less likely she will be found. Uh, But I think what we also can say is that in situations like Suzanne's where the belief, the popular belief, is that she was murdered, most likely by her husband, then the odds of her being found are lower than your general, the general population of disappearances where you would include everything. And why that is, you know, if we have a situation going back to Jason Landry's where we believe that he wrecked the car all on his own and had some injury and he walked off, then, yeah, maybe he's a mile away, maybe he's a 10 miles away, but at least you have an idea that he's in this area and he just hasn't been found yet despite all these searches. But you surely don't don't think that he's going to be found... Uh, in Maine, he went missing in Texas. You don't think we don't think he's going to be found in Maine. The odds of that are very, very not zero, but very, 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 very low. But with Suzanne and her husband, he could have put her anywhere. She, he could have put her one place and then moved her when he had time to move her to another place. Then it's almost. Anything's possible. Uh, I don't think that he would be able to be to put her on a plane to, to fly her remains anywhere, like China or anything. But I guess conceivably he could have took her take could have took could have taken her remains to Canada, could have taken her remains to Mexico. So in those situations, it'd be much lower than your general uh, disappearance. The odds say she will be. That doesn't mean she will. Uh, Simply because 
of uh, most disappearances and missing people are found. But you start looking at it on a case-by-case basis, then you realize that um, it probably could be uh, very tough. Lots of rumors uh, specifically regarding Suzanne's disappearance. Uh, If we are to believe that her husband did it, then it does seem to me that this was not something that was planned. This is a disappearance very much like many others where – The guy lost his mind, did something, and then had to pull this all together very quickly. That is good for the investigators, given that this guy would have had to do things on the fly and and made mistakes, and maybe he did. We, the public, may never know until a trial happens, if a trial happens. But um, it's certainly better than thinking that this had been planned for a long time, because if it was, then that even makes it tougher to find her. So to answer, will Suzanne Morphew ever be found? I'm going to say yes, but I would never want to put any money on one. It may be 50 years from now. It may be. All right. Next question. Uh, Once again, going outside the the realm of unfound and anything true crime related. Uh, The question is, have I ever been to the Clearwater Aquarium? And I think the reason I got asked this is because just within the last few years, they've had a rebuild over there, and it's gotten a lot of attention, and having seen commercials for it, pictures and everything, it does look spectacular. Uh, But to answer the question, I can almost – can I see it from here? Uh, I can almost see the aquarium from my floor in this building. Almost. It's just some things in the way. Very close. But uh, I've never been there. I would like to go someday. But, you know, going to aquariums and things, that's kind of – isn't that kind of like a couple's thing? Or if you have children, of course, you take your children there. That's more of a date thing, family thing, and I'm a single guy, and it just feels kind of weird. I will admit that I've gone to Disney World and Epcot by myself. I, when I've been over there for disc golf tournaments, um, just for something to do, I don't mind that. I just love to walk around and experience the atmosphere and everything. But you know, you go to an aquarium by yourself as an adult—that just sounds kind of creepy. I gotta admit, it just sounds creepy. So um, the answer is no. I'd love to go one day, but I will need somebody to go with me. And so we can – I guess she and I can experience it together. But it does look fascinating. Um, I haven't been to an aquarium in quite a long time. Uh, The Clearwater Aquarium uh, is very well regarded. I mean how many aquariums do you know that are – you know, refurbishing and making themselves, you know, bigger site and everything. And that's what they've done. And going over that direction, and the thing is, I don't drive that direction very often because to go that direction, I have to go right through Clearwater Beach and it's always very busy. So I go south down to Bel Air Beach and make a left into Bel Air Bluffs and get away from the beach that way, not going through Clearwater Beach. But going over there once in a while, I did see it as it was being built, um, 
adding on whatever they were doing, and it looks pretty spectacular. Maybe one of these days, but yes, it's within a mile of where I live, live, and I haven't been there. <laughs> Told you, I'm a homebody. Homebody. Single 51-year-old guy homebody. Next question. Can you give any ideas of clues that the police or family or investigators should look for after a missing uh, a person goes missing? I was wondering about things like new concrete slabs being poured for no reason, people leaving town suddenly, strange behaviors and families or friends or acquaintances, etc. Um, you know, unfortunately, it all depends on the kind of disappearance. For every disappearance, uh, there will be uh, clues to look for. Yes, there are certain types, as I've talked about in my college discussions. Um, you know, the man said type of disappearance and drugs play a role. And then those disappearances that have no classification, they're so rare. The type maybe like Dale Kerstetter's disappearance. But even within those types, you know, it's just hard to say what you would be looking for. Of course, with any disappearance in which there's a reason to believe foul play occurred, you have to start looking at that suspect or suspects, and do they have alibis? And are those alibis verifiable? And if they do have alibis and somebody else is giving this person an alibi, could this person be lying or not? And then you maybe have to look into that person. Uh, The only thing I will say is this in general. If you think that your missing loved one was murdered and that there was foul play, at the very second that you think that, whether it's an hour after you figure out that the person is missing or a day or a week, you need to write down all the pe- all the pe- all of the people who you believe would have wanted that person to go missing. You write down all their names. You give that list to the police. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to do anything with it. But then you should also try to figure out what are the alibis for all of these people. Now, very well may just be one person. Your daughter, Jane Doe, 25 years old, went missing. Uh, Her husband, John Doe, you believe is the person who caused her disappearance and he's giving some, the man said situation, you know, situation. Yeah, we were sitting at home and then she just got up, walked out the door door. I didn't know where she was going. And I saw her walk out and get into a white pickup truck and drive away. Of course, that story does not sound believable, but still, if he's going to create a crazy story like that, then you start need to start looking at him. Do not invade his rights. Do not do anything illegal. But you do need to start asking around. Go talk to the neighbors. Maybe in a creative way, talk to his boss or his supervisor. And you just tell them what you're thinking. And find out what you can. Because probably the police are not going to do that. And if it turns out that it's not a – there was no foul play and your Jane Doe did go off in a truck with – you know, maybe she had a lover you didn't know about, then that will eventually play itself out. 
But I think that that is always choice number one because what happens is that it's easy very quickly to find out where people were on a certain day of a disappearance. But if you wait until like a month later to try to figure all that out, uh, a person who is the best suspect, who would obviously be lying, who is a killer, could certainly almost make up anything and it would be hard for you to prove that person is lying. Of everything, alibis are the thing that seem to dissipate the quickest. Uh, The longer you go, it's harder and harder to prove what that person was doing at a certain time. That is my perception. So that's uh, what I would do in any kind of disappearance. Now, it very well may be that the person just walked off. But you've got to start gathering that information right away regarding suspects and alibis. Once again, it may not be any foul play, but you can at least get that out of the way. If it was a mental health situation that the person walked off and walked off into the woods, then hopefully, and and committed suicide, then we're hoping, of course, that the remains would be found. And if that happens, then all of these people you suspected you know, can be dismissed and you can throw that list away. Uh, But that I think is the part that people regret the most that when they finally figure out that, Oh, I think this was foul play. Then it's too late. You can't go back in time to, to do that particular point um, and do that kind of research very accurately. Got to get, make a list of suspects, Find out their alibis right away because that will be the information that will vanish vanish with time the quickest. Uh, so there you go. I hope that answers that question. It's just it's just a, tar, a tough question to answer specifically. Uh, you just have to um, give me some, for instances, examples, and then I would be able to tell you what to look for. It just disappearances. Although they can be similar, they can be very different in many aspects, too. Another question uh, that is given that this is the Q&A episode. Uh, I wonder if you took any type of classes to learn how to investigate disappearances or if you studied cases or how you prepared yourself to do the Unfound podcast. First of all, there are no classes. The classes that I've taught three times that I teach them. Let's just say I did a presentation. The classes that I, where I've done presentations three times are the only, surely the only missing persons presentations that have done, been done in the United States, maybe, maybe in the history of the United States, possibly. Where somebody comes in for an hour and 15 minutes and all he or she talks about are missing persons cases, different types, examples, what happened, how some of them were solved, why many of them go unsolved, the mistakes that are made during investigation. Surely I am the only person who has done that and is doing that. I'm hoping other people will start doing it too if they have the expertise and and knowledge and everything that I've gained over the last five and a half years. But let's be clear, there are no classes. Zero. So I wonder if if I took any classes. No, I did not. Um, if you studied cases, now I would say I kind of did that, but no differently than what any of you have done. 
once again, again going back to how I got into this, and really when the uh, when the internet started. Now you should know something though that probably I would say that my where I got the kind of the the base for having a nose for this stuff was not necessarily rooted in missing persons cases. It was actually rooted in plane crashes. I've talked about this before. That I'm still fascinated by like this recent uh, China flight uh, that crashed. Uh, in my spare time, I've been trying to find out anything I can, uh, you know, going to airliners.net and other places. And that happened because I had a fear of flying. And I, and I decided... What's the best way to get over a fear that is surely irrational is just to learn as much about that. And so I started learning about plane crashes and why that happens. Why do planes crash? And so now kind of a little bit, I'm a, an encyclopedia of plane crashes, just like I'm a little bit of an encyclopedia regarding disappearances, even though I realize there are many disappearances that I've never heard of. But that's where I got my start when the internet came around like 1995-96 and very shortly after that there were people writing about uh, crashes that had happened years before before the internet ever started and there were of course there's tv shows and i've seen all of them and i've read a lot of books and in fact i have an an old book about well-known jet crashes from like the 1980s. It's in hardback. I have it over in the closet. And so that's where I got my start. And what you do is you, you of course, get to learn about how these investigators go about doing what they do. And you can apply a lot of that to disappearances. And what I would take from both, what you learn in plane crashes is it's not necessarily just one thing that brings down a plane. Whether it's like a hijacking like happened on September 11th, or it's just some mechanical um, issue that happens, or it's just pilot error. It's a lot of things that come together. And what you also find is that it's a lot of things that come together, not even just on that day. It was a series of mistakes and oversights and lack of training and everything that lined up maybe over years that then culminated on that particular day, particular day when that plane crashed with those people and those pilots in it. That's what you learn, surely. Even with September 11th, what, what do we now know? Those guys who hijacked those planes had been working at that for months, if not years, taking uh, flying classes on how to take uh, how to take off, but not how to land. They had done dry runs flying on planes. The actor James Woods has talked about seeing some of these guys on his own flight in the months before flying across the United States. They got on these planes. They were watching how flight attendants, their patterns, and whether the cockpit door was open and everything. This was something that had been lined up for a long time. It just didn't happen on September 11th. That was just the ending to it. That was just the culmination. That was the finality of it. But it had been going on, the plans and had been going on for a while, in addition to the United States and kind of a lax security maybe gotten to a uh, false sense of security regarding 
airline security combined with that. So for disappearances, it's kind of the same thing. I think that 250 disappearances in, what we know is these disappearances don't just happen in a moment in time. They happen over a period of time leading up to the day of the disappearance. What's going on in that person's life? What was going on in that person's relationships? What was that? Per- what was going on in that person's mental health? Did that person have any addictions? Did this? Did the missing person do this and that? That's what we learn, and that's why I continue to say that disappearances are, in the end, mainly. I know this is going to say mainly about people and what the the what they were doing, the choices that they were making, who was around them. And that is all stuff that is before that date of the disappearance. So how I prepared myself, I didn't know I was doing this, but in studying plane crashes, I set myself up to be able to kind of jump into missing persons cases, even though I'd been following, you know, reading about them and watched a lot of TV shows, but on them. Um, but it was mainly plane crashes in my life for most of the time. And then it kind of switched over, but airplane crashes kind of set me up as far as the kind of thinking that I do for missing persons cases. I think it's also the reason that my theories regarding disappearances tend to be a lot more mainstream and dare I say it boring compared to the rest, the publics, the audiences, you, the listeners, Because when it comes to plane crashes, they're pretty straightforward. Rarely, rarely, rarely is it something like really, really weird. It's things that um, were avoidable and people knew about, even if it was pilot air or some mechanical, um, you know, problem that was known about that should have been fixed a certain way and wasn't. Plane crashes, rarely is it some really, really crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, cause of crash. Most of them are pretty straightforward, but you still have to investigate them. And that's why in investigating them, that's why airline travel, at least in the United States, is the safest it's ever been. I just wish we could convert that kind of uh, change, cause that kind of change in missing persons cases and studying them and then keeping them from happening and investigating them and actually solving them. We haven't been able to do that. We haven't been I use something like in the, you know, the NTSB for plane crashes and their methodology for what they do and bring it over to missing persons cases just hasn't been done. It should be, but it's not because the NTSB, the FAA, they've shown that going about studying plane crashes the way they do has made air travel safer. Whereas all the work that has been done investigating and uh, disappearances doesn't seem like anybody's getting any better at that at all. There you go. All right, moving on. And I told you this question was coming up that, that goes along with a question from before. Uh, once again, another non-true crime, non-missing persons question. Um, is there, are there, are there any foods you absolutely will not eat and why? So of course, before it was, what are some of my favorite foods besides chicken wings? And now it's what are foods that you absolutely not eat? I have 
as like I said, as I've gotten older, there are a lot of things that I can't eat. I'd love to eat them, but I can't. I love cantaloupe. Can't eat it. Allergic. I love strawberries. Can't eat them. Allergic. Now I can eat them if like they're like if they've been cooked or in a pie or something. But if I just go to the grocery store and get strawberries, like raw strawberries in the carton, and were to eat them, oh, you know. I'm not going to die or anything, but it's not it's not pretty. I love sauerkraut. Just within the last couple of years, I've become allergic to sauerkraut. And I love sauerkraut. Best thing you can put on hot dogs ever. Can't eat it. Gets my uh, throat all itchy. I start coughing. It, it's, it's not good. It's not dangerous. I'm not going to die. But it's just a real pain in the butt. So there are things that I want to eat that I can't. And then also with uh, some lactose intolerance once in a while and FODMAP because my body processes certain sugars and things in a certain way that makes it painful. But as far as foods that I can eat that don't cause me any problems, but I won't eat them because I think they're nasty, I have a really some a weird list. I don't eat ketchup. I love tomatoes. I can eat tomatoes. They don't cause me any problems. I love tomatoes in salads, I love those little cherry tomatoes. I will eat them raw. You just put a little salt on them. Fantastic. But ketchup is nasty. I don't know what it is about it. I just won't eat it. Uh, so when it comes to french fries, uh, it'll just be salt. I love vinegar on french fries. I like hot sauce like Tabasco sauce or something like that on french fries. Gravy on French fries is spectacular, but I don't I don't eat ketchup. It's just the texture of it that it's made out. Nobody's more amazed that it's made out of tomatoes than I am. What else don't I eat that most people eat? I don't eat macaroni and cheese. I know that's like sacrilegious. You're you're an American and you don't eat mac and cheese. I do not. I think it's nasty, and I've been like that my entire life. I know, like for most kids. Mac and cheese was like the greatest treat your mom could make or your father could make. I don't eat it to this day. I do not eat it. There's just something about it. Now, do I like macaroni in other forms? Yes. Do I like cheese? Yes. But you put those two together, there's just something weird about it. that I just think it's like the nastiest thing ever. I have another kind of two foods combined that I just will not eat. I love chocolate. Really, these days, I just eat dark chocolate. I've kind of uh, gotten an acquired taste for it, luckily. And I love pretzels. I will not eat chocolate-covered pretzels. They're nasty. I Once again, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know. So... Those are probably just off the top of my head some weird things. Oh, here's another weird uh, food or a food that I won't eat that I think most people would consider to be weird. I love raviolis. I love spaghetti even though given that it's pasta and, and wheat and gluten and everything, I shouldn't be eating it. But I love it. Uh, the tomato sauce. I'll eat the tomato sauce. It's not ketchup. But don't ask me to eat rigatoni. I think rigatoni is nasty. I don't. I know what you're saying. Ed, it's just spaghetti in a different form. I know. 
but there's just I didn't eat my mother's rigatoni. I don't eat rigatoni. At, you know, I've gone to I think I think rigatoni. I think when you go to like parties, like graduation parties or things like that. I don't care who makes it. I don't eat it. So there's something else. Uh, many of you know that I don't drink alcohol, period. I haven't had a drop of alcohol since the mid-2000s. I have never been drunk. I've never had a buzz in my entire life. It's just not something I've never gotten into. It's not a religious thing or anything else. Just never got into it. And probably I've saved myself a lot of money because of that. No wine, no whiskey, no bourbon, no nothing. Just I just don't do that. Uh, and in fact, I think the whole fascination with these micro brews and all that's kind of kind of kicked in in the last 10, 15 years is like the weirdest thing ever. As a non-drinker, I look at that and just I, I don't get it. Some other foods that I won't touch liver. My dad loves liver. But I think most people don't like liver, so maybe I'm not so weird in that respect. Um, you know, I'm just trying to go up and down the aisles in a, in a grocery store. I don't know. Um, that's probably like the, the weird things for me being from Western Pennsylvania. I'm supposed to love pierogies. Pierogies are nasty. I'm supposed to love uh, stuffed cabbage, which is a big, once again, Western Pennsylvania thing due to the ethnicities that have settled in that area since the 1800s. Stuffed cabbage is nasty. So, um, I eat chili, but I prefer the beans not to be in it. But And then you add on top of the FODMAP issues. I've gotten to the point at 51 where I'm really limited on what I can eat. I, if I go to a restaurant, there's... Only a very tiny part of the menu that that I can eat. But even so, I don't consider myself to be a picky eater. I don't know. So those are some of the things that I will absolutely not eat. I'm sure I did not type anything out. But I'm sure if I really sat down, there would probably be 10 more foods that most people eat that uh, that I don't. All right, moving on. Out of all the cases that Unfound is done, do you believe any are victims of uh, serial killers? Well, we have uh, Dennis Bowman, who killed that woman in Virginia in 1980, and then he killed his daughter Alexis in 1989. It is believed that he killed has killed maybe a couple other women. And given you know 1980 to 1989, did he really not kill anybody in those years? Not sure, but I can tell you Kathy, Kathy Tarkanian certainly believes he did. I could probably be convinced of it, so we would probably have to call him a serial killer. Uh, Debbie Lowe, a uh, little girl from down there in the Miami area, Pompano Beach. She was surely killed by a serial killer, Gerard Schaefer. You can look up. He even has – look him up. He even has his own um, Wikipedia page. And he was actually in law enforcement at the time, but he knew Debbie's family. And there's no, not a much doubt in my mind that he waited for Debbie to walk to school that day and snatched her up. If you'll remember her 
book bag or her books were found in a trash can along the route uh, that she would take to school. And then he was eventually caught later because of two girls that he took somewhere and he handcuffed them to a tree. And then for some reason let them go, I think it was. And they went, they reported him and then started the ball rolling to the point where they figured out that he had killed others. But it's surely believed, uh, not much doubt, that he abducted uh, Debbie Lowe and killed her. So the answer to that is yes. Um, And there are probably a a few other disappearances uh, that we've covered where you could believe that it's part of a larger crime spree. Maybe Megan Lancaster from... um, Portsmouth, Ohio, given everything that was going on in that area at the time, the corruption, certainly could believe that whatever happened to her was caused by somebody who killed other women. Although I have to say my personal opinion is that she wasn't murdered, that she overdosed and other people covered it up. But she might have just been out what we understand, just general idea of murder, certainly possible. So... um. That's just a couple. Uh, you know me. I, I don't like to jump too deep into that, but those two are just so obvious because we, we all know about Dennis Bowman now. In addition, in the Debbie Lowe episode, what was that, from 2018, we talk about Gerard Schaefer, so I'm not, so I'm not really saying anything out of school, but I'm just not going to venture too far in that. But I would not be surprised if... After 250 disappearances, that that a couple more disappearances are were caused by somebody who uh, killed others. I don't think that would surprise me. Maybe we can look at Brenda Condon. That came up uh, in talking to her sister about Brenda's disappearance in Pennsylvania. That there was a uh, a guy who killed a woman, uh, and the body was dumped very close to where Brenda was working uh, there in Pennsylvania. Maybe we could think about. Brenda Condon's disappearance. So those are a few. I hope that's enough to answer the question. And uh, maybe all of you can find at least maybe a couple more. Um, next question. When working with family members, what has been the learning curve to build a great rapport? Well, early on it was very difficult because I was a nobody. There was just this idea I had for this podcast. It was called Unfound. Had the idea that I would get in contact with family members and talk to them one-on-one, do these long-form interviews with no edits except for the mistakes. And these people would just get to talk about their missing loved one and everything that they've been through. And there would be no um, – Uh, what you might call editor's choices or creative choices on my part where I start taking things out because I think it's not as important or whatever else. Many other podcasts, not just in true crime, they they do do that. They they will talk to somebody for uh, a few hours and then they will just go through and take out the highlights. They'll talk to the person for three hours and only use a half hour. And then they will put their own commentary in between certain parts that were recorded in that conversation. Uh, I Personally, I think that's horrible journalism. It's quicker 
<clears throat> it's certainly easier than the way I do it, but I, I don't respect that kind of journalism. Because then what you're really getting is the host's uh, version of events. You're not getting the guests, the family members' version of events. The, it's the host who is determining what's important and what's not and gets to put her words in or his words in between these comments that have been edited, you know, cut out and put into the episode. Whereas you have like two and a half hours of stuff the, the family member said that is never heard. That just seems weird to me. Why would you take up a person's time like that? But that's the way I wanted to do it. And very early on, it was very difficult. You just I still to this day I've met very few of the guests of Unfound in person. So you just start calling people up. You just start emailing people. Hi, my name's Ed Denzel. I'm gonna be doing this podcast. I'm starting it in September twenty sixteen. I'd like to talk to you. And you get a lot of rejections. I got a lot of rejections. And even to this day, uh, we will send out emails to people and they don't respond. I think they do look up the podcast and maybe just to figure it's not for them. Maybe they get afraid and maybe they aren't ready to talk about it. A lot of different reasons. But certainly the reason back then in 2016 that people didn't want to talk is different than the reasons here in 2022. Now, I think what helped is that early on I spoke – I did end up speaking to people who had a lot of experience doing interviews. Uh, Mary Lyle, Susie Lyle's mother, Kelly Jolkowski, Jason Jolkowski's mother, um, Glendine Grant, Jesse Foster's mother. That certainly helped. In addition, then I also did uh, Ben Charles Padilla's or Padilla's disappearance – and it was an it was an a writer, an aviation writer who was on. So that's a little different. And so you get up to maybe ten or fifteen episodes, and you talk to people who who maybe have had a lot of experience doing media over the so many years. That helps. I think that if I had been contacting people who never spoke to the to to a, a reporter before or had been on a podcast before then it probably would have been even more difficult than it was. But early on, I don't know if that was going through my mind or not. It just seems that early on I did talk to a lot of people who had done a lot of interviews before they ever talked to me. So they were very comfortable talking to somebody that they didn't know. So that helped. And then over time, you build rapport by now when you contact people, they can go and listen to the 250 episodes and – See, oh, this is what Ed's about, and they can check me out on Facebook or Twitter or the website. And I'm not just unfound in myself or not just big mysteries anymore. So as far as a learning curve goes, I guess there is a learning curve. It was all on-the-job training. Uh, I will say that even what was true back then is still true now. I just pick my words very carefully. And um, that's it's all you really can do. Um, I just uh, just try to ask the right questions, get right to the point, and 
that's that's the best way to do it because as I've stated many times that I'm not here um, to be a shoulder to cry on. Okay, I'm a reporter. I'm looking for the facts. I'm looking for the information, and they know that. Um, I'm not, even though sometimes I play one, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor or anything like that. I think probably after five and a half years, I maybe have some skills in those areas, but that's not really why I'm here, and I think just keeping it to that actually makes it easier for them. Because then we're just talking about numbers and dates and locations, and we keep it very, um, I don't know if you want to call it black and white or dry or something like that, Um, very stark maybe is that the word. And then I think that that keeps things uh, a little smoother Although eventually, as you know, in the interviews, I do talk about how does this affected you? How has this affected your family? I obviously give them a chance to talk about that in the interviews too. But was there a learning curve? There was. Luckily, this was, uh, has always been a weekly podcast. So uh, the learning curve you know, can get up to speed fairly quickly in contrast if I was only doing one podcast a month then it would have been a lot harder. And then you start wondering, would you ever, would I have ever felt comfortable doing it? Would I ever feel confident calling these people up or emailing them? Maybe not. But being this is a weekly program, uh, you get to do it over and over and over a lot of times, week after week. And as some guests have told me, and they've done a lot of interviews, Ed, you're the best interviewer uh, that I think I've ever done talk to regarding my daughter's disappearance and my response is always after like almost 300 episodes i better sound good i better know what i'm doing (laughs) better given the that i do it so often so that's what i that's how i would answer uh, that's how i would answer that question about learning curve and building rapport um, next question, with the expansion of Unfound presently, where do you want to see it in five years in regards to expansion, family rapport? And there's that word, the two-word family rapport again. And it's a totally different person. And resources for amateur missing persons experts. In five years, um, I hope to be speaking to a lot of schools. I hope to have created a an actual missing persons course. And in fact, Dr. Eric Grabowski, uh, my assistant and I, given that he is a, is a college professor has helped me with that, putting that together. Hopefully in five years, I would be able to quote unquote, sell the idea to some schools on that, that it should be part of their curriculum. And maybe I go in and, uh, teach a class for a semester or something like that, maybe remote could do that these days with Zoom or whatever, remote learning, maybe so I could be speaking to different schools on different days. I really do love being there in person though, but this would actually be a real class that, you know, uh, however many hours over the course of a semester from August to December, something like that, let's say 45 hours of nothing but talking about disappearances, looking at disappearances in media and everything, and uh, I'm working on it. 
That's where I would hope to be in five years. Doing speaking engagements all the time and then also having something that's up and running where you're really – it's just not me showing up for a day or a couple days speaking to a class like I do already, but actually a real class with course credit and, and all of that. And uh, Eric has led me to believe that this is something that certainly, certainly can be done given his experience as a professor for many years and – Luckily, he in the school that he's at, he is actually on a commission or board or something where people do come to the school with ideas, of course, in his area of concentration, that he gets to look over their planning and what they want to do. So he has a lot of experience and he can pass on that to me of what telling me, well, this works and this doesn't work. Here's what I've seen other people do and. But like I said, he's not a criminal justice professor, but still, I think it's, uh, most of his experience is certainly transferable over to what I'm trying to do. So certainly that is the biggest thing that I want to happen in the next five years. Probably a lot of it would all be already be up and running had it not been for COVID. I would think that it would not be a surprise in five years that given that I already appeared on News Nation Now a couple months ago, I wouldn't be surprised in five years that I'm the go-to person when some national uh, like Gabby Petito or something happens and uh, a major news channel needs somebody to come on and speak intelligently about missing persons cases and how they're investigated – I would not be surprised in five years if I'm that person. That would not surprise me at all. So that's what I see. In contrast to continuing to do the podcast and everything else that we do, uh, five years from now, I, I think that that all should be happening. Just take some planning, maybe a little bit of luck, and a lot of you know a lot of good things happening all put together, but. That's where I want to see uh, Unfound and myself and whoever wants to go along for the ride uh, five years from now. We'll continue to work on that, going to have speaking engagements, maybe a couple more before the semester's over, and then certainly quite a few in the fall. And, you know, just see if there's some things I can do, maybe even the summer. We'll just have to see. So that, I hope, answers. That question. Next question. Is there anyone who you have interviewed that you absolutely did not believe? And I, I remember when this question was sent to me and I was like, you mean other than Steve Pankey? Um, you have to understand something. If I don't believe a person, then the person is not going to make it on the program. That's not – I'm just not going to – I'm just not going to – I mean really – now, granted, Steve Pankey, different situation as you all can, you all understand that. But if I'm having a family member on and I don't trust that family member, then what exactly am I doing? You know, what is the plan here? If I'm talking to somebody I don't even believe in, this person is supposed to be an authority on their loved one's disappearance. I really, what am I doing? I'm just wasting my time. Now, on the other hand, I'm not going to sit here at this microphone and tell you that I think that every person who has ever been on Unfound outside of Steve Pankey has told the truth. There are just certain things that guests say that there's no way that they can be verified. Now, I, I try to play it 
as tight as possible. And I think that you've all listened to enough interviews to know that when a person maybe starts going off on a tangent uh, too much that I will bring it back. You've, you know, and I don't mind interrupting the person once in a while and, you know, get these people who email me or post on, uh, YouTube, for example, now that the comments section are open, you're rude. You know, you talk over people and you can see the iTunes reviews and I think they're all just trolls, but I, uh, the, the guests know the outline. We both have the same agenda and, but it's my job to keep that agenda in focus. It's my job to keep on the path. It's not theirs. It's mine. So if the, if the, uh, interview goes spinning off into outer space, that's my fault, not the guest's fault. So I have a tight rein on all of it. Pull those people back. Pull them back. Pull them back to the topic at hand. Um, but when it comes to actually lying, there have been a couple people who I thought eventually were going to make it onto Unfound as guests and didn't because eventually I just figured out there's just something about all this that does not sound right there. And the most famous example I give is uh, there was a family out there of a guy who was in the military, disappeared back in the 1990s. And in fact, just recently I came across these notes that I took way back in like 2016 or 2017. And I sent them to my uh, assistants who none of, none of them were with me at the time. It was just me alone at the time. I sent that to them. I don't know if they've looked at them. I think maybe Carrie has, but – you know, just to give them an idea of what I was talking about, there was a family who to this day believes that the federal government oft you know, oft or killed their family member because this guy found like missing money in the military or something. And they believe that all these other people died because of this as well. And and I, I have to be, be honest that I actually considered covering the disappearance still, even though that sounded outrageous. Once again, we don't get into theories, but there was no way we were going to be able to talk around that in an interview situation. You're going to be able to easily read between the lines. And, But on the other hand, we have to remember that this guy, the last time he was seen, he was seen with his wife's brother. Well, it turns out this guy who went missing was cheating on his wife. But they didn't want to talk about that. They didn't want to talk about how it might have been possible that this this wife's uh, brother might have done something to this missing guy because he was cheating. Didn't want to talk about that. No, 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 no. We can't talk about that. We have to stick just to this side and how what he did. And I can't do that. I just I can't, I can't do that. And I, like I said, even recently I went back and looked at those notes thinking, is there any wiggle room in here at all that maybe I can con- re- contact them again and try to work this out? And the more I looked at the notes I took and the more I looked at the information they sent me back at the time, I'm like, this is too wacky. It's just too crazy. It's just, they're just too out there. It's just, it's just, it's just not going to work. And there have been other guests who, um, just could not be honest with me. For example, um, the, they would admit that their missing son, for example, was around a bunch of, um, addicts 
But then they wanted to tell me over and over and over and over and over that my son never did drugs, would never do drugs, wasn't an addict, never took a drug. And it's like, I'm just, I'm just not interested. We have to talk about people honestly on, on Unfounder. I'm just not interested. I'm not here to expose all their secrets and everything, but if you're going to try to sell me on something like that, then then we're not giving everybody the full picture. And then once again, I have to start wondering what – if we're not going to be giving the, the really, really good adequate picture regarding the missing person, then why am I covering this disappearance in the first place? Because I, as I've said, as I've learned, disappearances are about people. They're not necessarily about times and dates and locations. Disappearances are about people and choices, whether the missing person making choices or people around them making choices, good choices, bad choices, addictions, and everything else. Passion, all the seven deadly sins, all of that. And so there have been people like that, and I just decided that they're just not really willing to talk about the entire everything that was going on in their missing son's life honestly. So I can't do that either. But I would never allow anybody to get onto the program and just and just market lies and me just sit there and um, ask the questions. Now, very well may be after the fact that um, maybe things transpired that caused me to believe that maybe a few things that person said weren't true. But I don't think I could have ever believed that at the time. But you know I'm not going to get into any of that. But I really believe all – I mean I can look at the interviews I've done and look back and say, you know, I could have done a better job here, better job there. Certainly early on in Unfound's existence. But in none of those interviews will I say, man, I really, really just messed it up. And man, that that guest really got off easy. And man, I just – I can't believe I allowed that guest to say all of that in that interview. There's nothing like that at all. Zero. Zero. Even Steve Pankey. Zero. And I will stick by that in, until the day I die. So once again, is there anyone you have interviewed you absolutely did not believe? When you say absolutely, the answer is no. Although, like I said, I'm guessing that there's just some things that guests have said once in a while – that weren't true, how that overall affected the overall view of the disappearance, I'm not thinking very much. Okay, uh, next question. Um, if any of the missing persons you've covered are identified using genetic genealogy, will you interview the family about it? You know, we really don't do follow-up interviews on Unfound. I, because if you do one, then you have to do many and we're now at 250 disappearances. That's why the update episodes exist. The next one, of course, will coming out in a couple weeks. That's why the update episodes exist. If there is big news that happens, if remains are found or somebody is charged or there's been coverage on some big you know, program or like what's going on with Tom Brown between Phil Klein and that radio station with that radio host, and that's why the update episodes happen every three months. Um, there haven't been any family members who have come on for a second time. We've had multiple guests, Anthony, Heather Grotman, Caroline Lowe. But if somebody is found, whether alive or deceased, uh, 
I think it's just fine to cover that in an update episode. And of course, if you're watching the live show every Wednesday night, I talk about those that type of news there as well. And you should be watching the live show every Wednesday night. It's the best live show in all of true crime, of course. So uh, the answer probably to that question, if any of the missing persons you covered are identified using genetic genealogy, we interview the family about it. I may talk to them about it, but it, it will not be official interview. It will be off the record. I may say, yeah, I talked to, I talked to Jane Doe about her daughter being found uh, through genealogy, but I'm not going to do an interview uh, about it because once again, then I'd probably get caught up doing interviews. I'd probably just be covering the same 250 disappearances over and over and over, and we're here to cover more disappearances. We're here to get to 300 and 350 and 400 and 450 and 500. There's only so many uh, days or hours in a week. Um, This person asks, I'm keen on learning about appeals for info of a missing person with reward on offer. In your experience, not just with cases on unfound, has a reward ever been paid out and led to a body found or a conviction if foul play was suspected? I'm just interested in the odds of success in a reward. My gut is telling me it's still very slim. Thanks. Rewards are useless. I can't. I just can't put it any more simply. Rewards are lose, useless. Now, I'm not saying that rewards have never been paid out in certain crimes, maybe in some murders, maybe in a couple missing persons cases. But if you're really holding, if you are a family out there that's really holding on to that, like one the the one percent of the one percent. Then I, then I just got to be honest, you're wasting your time. Um, I think it's known that all rewards do is cause all the kooks to come out of the woodwork, just hoping they're going to get lucky, lucky. Causes all the psychics and numerologists and palm readers and remote learn, remote learn, not remote learning. That's funny. Remote visions or whatever they call that, and third eye and people with sixth senses and all that. All it causes is all of them to come out of the woodwork. The problem is then then the police are uh, burdened with all of that. And they can't say no to it because why? It's the family who's come up with the reward in the first place. And how does law enforcement say, no, we're not going to do this after the, the, the family put up this reward? I'm telling all of you, don't do rewards. Don't do it. And you may be saying, well, you know, when rewards are offered, it uh, you know, really boosts the, um, the attention given to the case. It's, it's one of those issues like is, is bad publicity better than no publicity at all? To me, uh, a disappearance becoming well-known again because of reward is bad publicity. Because I have no hopes that that is going to solve anything at any time. And all it's going to do is create bad information, not good information. I think what we know after 250 disappearances is that if people um, know th- – if their people are good and know things, they will come forward. If they are bad and know things, they will not come forward no matter how much the reward is. I mean – we have um, like Tiffany Johnson's disappearance 
We know that her ex-boyfriend was eventually convicted for kidnapping and now he's in jail. I am sure they offered him a deal to uh, say where Tiffany is. He won't give it up. So if somebody who is going to have maybe years taken off a sentence, and this is common, if somebody who has the opportunity to have years taken off his prison sentence isn't going to tell law enforcement where a missing person is, that the remains are, then why do we think the rewards are going to work? Makes no sense. I would get rid of rewards immediately in, in everything, in everything. Here in the United States, I, I'm not a Canadian. I'm not uh, – I'm not – I am a technically Irish by heritage, but I'm not an Irish citizen. I'm not a citizen of Ireland or Northern Ireland. I'm not French. All I know is what goes on in the United States, and I think here in the United States, we Americans, we have a, a fascination with rewards because why we all know about the Wild West, and we've all watched these Westerns, and uh, in, in eventually, in any what seems in any Western, there's going to be some picture of a, a picture of a bad guy with a reward on it. Of course, back then, a hundred dollars to bring this guy to justice. And so we, I think subconsciously Americans, we think that. And so we actually believe that that's how it works in the 21st century. But we have to remember, I'm not even sure that worked back in the wild west of the 1870s. That is a concoction of Hollywood. It's a great storyline. It's a great visual. I don't hold against Hollywood for that. But just because they put that in movies doesn't mean it actually worked in real life at the time. So it's really just a plot device. It's something to set something up and maybe just to show how bad this guy is that there's a reward you know, out for him. We have to get away from that. We have to get away from that nostalgia, uh, away from that tradition, away from that uh, heritage and as Americans and look at it through the lens of does this work? The answer is no. And I'm telling this to all families out there. If you have a reward out, I don't care if you've had it out for a year or 20 years. I would just negate all of it and give the money back to whoever put it up. Okay, next question. And we are getting uh, close to the end. Sound like Chandler Bing. Hey, you're saying, well, this is like a three-hour episode. Well, I only do this once a year, so give me a break. Next question, how do you factor in the possibility that serial predators, example, Israel Keys, may be responsible for some of the disappearances covered by Unfound? Um, I've talked about Israel Keys before. Um, I think that uh, his reputation, uh, it seems the longer that he is deceased, uh, the bigger his reputation gets, uh, the more people begin to suspect that he was a much uh, more prolific killer than he was, and I don't think there are any facts anywhere to support any of that. Um, the fact is we have to remember how he got caught very sloppily, and so how do you uh, rationalize that? How do you in one say, well, he was so prol prolific, and he was so smart, he was doing this and he was doing that, and he might have – you know, he was hiding uh, – the, he had these stashes allegedly all over the United States, but on the other hand, um, you know, he kills that last girl, then gets caught using her credit cards or ATMs or what ATM card or whatever he was doing. 
How do you rationalize that? Uh, I, I think really, I'm just going to be honest, and I know many of you take part in these discussions, but I just have to call it like I see it. I think people who continue to talk about Israel Keys and bring him up for all these unsolved crimes, I just think it's just people talking. I think it's just because they have nothing else to talk about. There are certainly a lot of other disappearances and murders and things to talk about, but I think that his name continues to come up simply because uh, maybe people get bored or something. Because there are certainly no facts to support the uh, for him to be dis- uh, keep being discussed over and over and over. I think it's it's all on the basis of one. Two murders that he committed where they discovered he had stashed some things away. There's only proof he ever did that once. And on the strength of that, people have taken off on these tangents that he committed all these unsolved crimes. We have to remember something. There was a time when, and you can find it maybe on Web Sleuths elsewhere, where a ton of people out there thought that Israel Keys killed Tara Grinstead. We now know that's not true. But that's just how discussions can get wild. Just because something is unsolved, well, Israel Keys must have done it. I'm telling all of you, stop talking about him. Stop thinking about him. And there is not one disappearance that we've covered on Unfound where I think that he took part in it. Nothing. Zero. Now, I think that I I tend to be very objective. Uh, I'm open to any facts that would change my mind. But really, I think this is Israel Keys is just a topic that people bring up because they just want to talk to other people. And that's interesting. Just because it's interesting doesn't make it true. So I and kind of uh, regarding this question, I think I've already kind of uh, covered this in a prior question regarding serial killers. I'm open to the idea that there are known serial killers who committed some of these crimes. But once again, due to them having a connection like Debbie Lowe and Gerard Schaefer, for example. Not just random Israel Keys from Alaska coming down to the lower 48 and and doing what he did. I just I just think that's I think it's craziness. Uh do I am I open to the idea that he killed at least one other person? Yes, but one out of we have a hundred thousand unsolved disappearances in the United States and then we have a uh, add a, a huge number onto that for all these unsolved murders, and to think that he's more he's responsible for more than one of those, I think is just outlandish. That's my standpoint. Next question: How do you feel about the stigma surrounding mental health and substance use and abuse in regards to missing persons cases, and how has that impacted you as an interviewer? doesn't impact me at all. We take all cases. Uh, the only time, as I dis- as I said earlier in this uh, episode, the only time we don't cover a disappearance is when the guest or the person I'm talking to uh, isn't believable or only wants to look at one side of things. That's the reason we don't cover a disappearance. It's because of the guest. It's not because of the disappearance. It's not because of the person who went missing. That never happens. We have covered the disappearance of felons. We have covered the disappearance 
of people who just weren't in generally really good people. We've covered the disappearance of drug dealers. I don't care. But whether a disappearance gets covered or not, all depends on who we can find to talk to. And is that person believable, honest? Uh, is the person maybe just trying to tell a tale? That will be the criteria in which it will be judged whether we cover a disappearance or not, not because of the missing person. So um, about the stigma, there's certainly – from a law enforcement perspective, there certainly is a stigma, and I'm just not making that up. That up. I have talked to enough law enforcement officers behind the scenes who will tell me that. So it exists. There's no doubt that law enforcement takes the disappearances of children more seriously than drug addicts and felons and and everyone else. Uh, The the rest of the media, uh, local TV stations... National TV stations, websites, social media, they take the disappearances of children and presumably, you know, good moral people much more seriously than they do of people who maybe have lived their lives a different way. It's not right. So to answer the question, how do you feel about the stigma? It sucks. Uh, and I and I will not be a, a part of it. There will never be a time when somebody comes to me with a disappearance and I say, well, I'm not going to cover that disappearance because that person was this and that person was that. That person was a drug addict. That person was homeless. That person had a bipolar disorder. That will never happen. But when it comes to law enforcement – we know that they take certain disappearances more seriously than others. But it hasn't, uh, it hasn't impacted me as an interviewer. Uh, maybe it's impacted me the opposite way. It makes me even more likely maybe to cover those disappearances. Maybe, I don't know if statistically that's true. You'd have to look at all of the uh, disappearances we've covered to this point. I, I would think that we've covered a wide array of different types of people. But uh, I can tell you that there, for sure that I work as hard uh, as a reporter, interviewer on the disappearances of people that the police ignored. I work as just as hard on those as the ones the p- people or the police didn't ignore. For sure. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, how's that going to change uh, for law enforcement? I don't no. Next question. I want to know why Craig Freer hasn't been found yet and who knows what happened to him. Uh, I'm open to the idea that nobody knows what happened to Craig Freer except Craig Freer. Uh, I didn't – I tried to avoid getting into – too because I know that these um, Q&A episodes every year could certainly – Turn into what do you think happened to this person? What do you think happened? And they would all be unfound cases. And I try to avoid that. Uh, but this was a question that came in very late uh, before I finished this episode. And I think Craig Freer's disappearance is a good example of a disappearance where a lot of people do believe something happened to him. But the more I do unfound, the more I'm convinced. 
nothing happened to him except what Craig Freer might have done to himself. There's a lot of belief out there that uh, his father might have done something to him. Did the father show up? They had a confrontation. The father killed Craig. Of course, his father is deceased now. Very sad. Very sad. Uh, belief that Craig, uh, maybe something went on after he took that phone call. Of course, he was with this girl. And uh, to this day, I still don't know what this girl's name is. I know some people are trying to figure out. I'm sure locally in where he disappeared, she is known. But I would certainly, you know, it's here in Florida, I don't know who she is. But certainly love to talk to her. And may, if she wants to talk, maybe something connected to her. Uh, did something happen in there that she covered up? Did Craig figure out his, you know, you know that he had been discovered faking going to work, and now he couldn't face his parents? Did he commit suicide? And other people covered it up. Those are all possibilities. But I think the, you know, and as many of you know, although it hasn't come up in this. Q&A episode, I am not one of those people who says that somebody has to know something. Uh, And when people say that, what they mean is somebody besides the missing person knows something. I think we know enough about disappearances five and a half years into Unfound that we, we now know that certainly only one person knew, and that was the missing person. Crystal Morrison, there was only one person on that earth who knew what happened to her that day, and that was Crystal Morrison. When Robbie Hurt went missing and died, there was only one person on this earth who knew what happened to him, Robbie Hurt. And even I at the time thought something else happened. I was wrong. So we, the rest of us, 7 billion, how many many people are on the earth now, we have to be very comfortable with the idea that there are disappearances that are like that. There is, you know, nobody has to know anything except the missing person. There's no rule. There's no law. Yes, there are more people on the earth than than ever, and there are cameras and social media and and GPS trackers and everything else. And still people can walk off all by themselves because they don't want to be around anymore and commit suicide or something, overdose on purpose, overdose by accident, and nobody on the rest of the earth would know anything. And there's no evidence that that happened, but it happened. And you don't know that until the person's remains are found. With Craig Freer, I think we have to be very open to the idea that that's what happened, is that he was found out, he was embarrassed, he was afraid of the trouble that he was going to get in, and, uh, you know, it takes, you have to remember, it takes a certain type of person to, you're living under the same roof as your parents, and you're lying to them about going to work, and you're not. I'm not criticizing, not something I would have ever done. I would have gotten in big trouble. But we have to realize that there might have been other things going on in Craig's life that only had to do with Craig and had nothing to do with his parents or or his friends or any, anybody else. All this stuff about him working there and with somebody doing something to him at work, harassing him. So I want to know why Craig hasn't been found yet. Maybe Craig walked off and he just... Uh, died somewhere, let's just say it, died somewhere, and just nobody's been found, has found him yet. Just like Jason Landry and a bunch of other disappearances that Unfound has covered and haven't covered. Many, many cases like that. And 
on that, nobody has to know anything. Who, who knows what happened to him? Maybe nobody knows but Craig. Can't rule that out. Like I said earlier, breaking down the percentages, it's probably 2025, 20, only 20% of, um, of uh, you know, it's, or it's a very small percentage of disappearances overall. But still, when you look at the entire number of disappearances, it's still a large number. If we consider 100,000 uh, disappearances to be uh, still unsolved in the United States, and like I said, 70% of them are murders, that still leaves 30,000 of all other types. That's a large number, and Craig could certainly be in that other percentage. Um, you know, in that 20, 25% where it's not an accident, it's somebody with a mental health issue, drug issue, addiction issue, bipolar issue, um, delusional issue, something like that, depressed issue, depressed issue. I think that's where you have to put Craig's. It's, he may very well have been murdered. No proof of that. But if he is in that 20, 25%, then there's nobody else on this earth who knows anything about his disappearance but Craig. All right, uh, moving on. Fun question. Uh, We're almost, once again, we're almost to the end. Fun question. What is your favorite sports moment? This question came in very late in the process of recording this episode. Uh, I'm going to look at this two ways. Uh, One, my personal favorite sports moment that I, I was a part of it, and then my favorite sports moment as a spectator, I will do – what am I going to do first? I will take on the spectator um, part first, and there are a lot. Um, we might be able to include Phil Mickelson's PGA win last year because it was so unexpected. We might take his golf um, when he won the – uh, the Open, the, what we call the British Open here in the United States, and what was it, 2013? Once again, unexpected. I might uh, put in there Andre Agassi winning the French Open to complete the Grand Slam in his career in 1999, where he came back from two sets down. I still remember following that because uh, I was a big – before I was a big huge uh, Phil Mickelson fan, I was a huge Andre Agassi fan. Might include that. Might include – um, the Super Bowl win that the, the Steelers had after I became an adult. Of course, Steelers won back in the 70s when I was just a little kid, but winning in 2005, 2008 when I was a much bigger Steelers fan, those uh, probably could all be included in there as a spectator. And so um, probably it's going to be... Wow, it's 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 so so tough. I'm not a hockey fan, so the Penguins aren't in that. I really I was a big Boston Celtics fan back in the 1980s, the NBA, and I'm sure I was excited when they won the NBA championship chip those times back in the 80s. But I really don't remember being that overtly excited about them. Something that I'm sure I was excited at the time, but it doesn't it hasn't stuck with me to this day. I don't remember celebrating. Or anything like that. But I have to say, man, it's so tough. 
and you and you kind of favor recent sports events, you know, as a spectator more than old ones. But I guess I'm going to have to do that. I, I'm going to have to say that even though I know that he's in um, persona non grata in golf right now for reasons that I don't still quite understand, I'm going to have to put Phil Mickelson's uh, PGA win last year because it was so unexpected. He was playing such horrible golf. He's 50 years old. He's like he, he and I were born in the same year. Uh, you know, nobody's winning at that age on the regular tour. He wasn't playing well and, and everything that was going on. And, um, of course, he was winning on the Champions Tour, but he'd kind of almost become a sideshow. He was doing these these uh, pay-per-view match things that he did with Tiger Woods and Bryce and DeChambeau and Charles Barkley and all that. And you thought, had he become like a, a golf sideshow, like a carnival act or something, and then out of nowhere – he wins uh, the PGA just completely out of nowhere. If if you had to put any money on him winning that tournament, you could have retired <laughs> collecting your winnings after collecting. That's how the odds were. I would have to say it's that. And then probably I'd have to put those Steelers uh, Super Bowl wins there. Probably the first one when they beat the Seattle Seahawks because it was such a long time coming. And I was, I'm still a big Bill Cower fan, and I thought that he deserved it, doing such a great job with the Steelers over these years, even though he really didn't have a quarterback until Ben Roethlisberger came along. Uh, I was really happy to see him get a Super Bowl and Heinz Ward and, and Jerome Bettis. That was a huge moment. I think bigger than, though, than, the, uh, than when they beat the Cardinals, although the way they, you know, Ended up going head right at the end. was certainly thrilling, but I think this the one where the, the Steelers beat the Seahawks was bigger uh, just because it had been so long, like 25 years or whatever it was. But still, number one sports moment as a spectator was Phil Mickelson winning the PGA last year in 2021. Now, as far as my own personal sports moment, I have quite a few. Played a lot of sports. I probably could put any of uh, my first disc golf win over in Orlando in 2015 was certainly big. But probably my number one sports moment, I was 14. And, I, you know, I had a lot of great baseball memories. I played on a, a lot of excellent baseball teams from Little League to Senior League, All-Stars, High School, Won a lot of games. I was on teams that won a lot of games. I was on a uh, little league team that won forty nine games in a row. We won, and then on all stars, we caught won a couple district. Uh, or on that team, we won a district championship. When I was in senior league, which is thirteen to fifteen year olds, we won two uh, district championships in the Ali Kiski Valley. When I was fourteen and fifteen, I won a lot of games, and I was a pitcher, and I was a part of a lot of those wins. But probably number one, the year would have been 1985. And it was the District 26 All-Star, Senior League All-Star Championship played at Lobby Hall in Freeport, Pennsylvania. It's up on the hill overlooking Freeport. We were playing Lower Borough. Uh, the All-Star team, I was the only 14-year-old on the team. All the other players were 15-year-olds. And it was the championship game. 
and I was on the bench. I had made the team because I was a pretty good pitcher. As a 14-year-old, I was like I said, I was the only 14-year-old to get picked. And what happened was the game started, and was it the third inning, our starting pitcher, his name was uh, Butch Walker was his name, big kid, but it was hot out. It was, what was it, July of uh, in Pennsylvania, hot and humid, and he was overweight. He continued to... Is he even still alive now? I don't even know, but he continued to be overweight, (laughs) me knowing him after that. But he ran out of gas. Uh, Lower Burl was hitting him all over the field. And keep in mind, he was an all-star. Good baseball player, but didn't have it that day. And my coach didn't take him out. Butch walked off the field in the middle of an inning. True story. He was getting hit. Couldn't throw. He was either getting hit or he wasn't throwing strikes. And after a while, he gave up in the third inning. And we were losing 8 nothing. <laughs> 8. Maybe it wasn't 8 eight nothing. I think it was 8-3 to three in like the third inning. So we had gotten a few runs. He walked off the field right in the middle of the inning. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. I've never seen it before or since. But he walked off the field, just said, I'm out. I'm done. 15-year-old just walked off the field. Coaches were like, what are you doing? I'm done. I'm not playing anymore. So I was the third pitcher. Even as a 14-year-old, I was the third pitcher. Our our number one pitcher uh, had been used the game before. The rules were you couldn't use him again. So I was the third pitcher. And we're down 8-3. I go in. And somehow, I am able to hold lower bowl scoreless the rest of the game. But the problem was, we weren't scoring any runs. We get to the seventh inning. We are uh, down still 8-3. to three. In the last inning. And somehow, we scored six runs in the top of the seventh inning. And I'm the pitcher... And I was one of those guys who scored. I'd, I'd, I don't remember how – did I get walked or something? But I'd come up to bat. Something happened. But I was one of those guys who came around to score that inning in the top of the seventh. But somehow we can't – and people, our fans had shown up. It was a big deal. Leechburg had never won a all-star district championship at that point. It was a big deal. A lot of the town showed up to Freeport, which was only like a 20-minute drive. And most of the fans, except for the parents, had left. Given up eight three, we're done. We're you know we're not coming back. And somehow we got this rally going. Went ahead nine eight, but we still at the bottom of the seventh. So I'm the pitcher. I go in first batter, hits a double. I might even been on the first pitch, hits a double. So they have. A guy on second base, no outs, bottom of the seventh, last inning. And if that guy scores, it's all tied up, and who knows what can happen. Maybe the next pitch or something after that, I throw a wild pitch. He gets to third base because the backstop was like like a professional backstop. was like way behind the catcher. Usually when you're playing in Little League Senior League, like the backstop's like right behind the catcher. Not for this. It was like way back there. 
And I threw a wild pitch, and I was a little wild. And he gets the third. So third, no outs. Somehow, that guy didn't score. I don't, I just, somewhere out there is the, the probably the scoring of that game. And somehow that guy didn't score. I probably struck one person out. Maybe there was a pop-up or something in the infield. I don't know, but just nothing that, uh, there was no wild pitches after that one that I threw that he could have scored, you know, gets behind the catcher. He can run in and score. No wild pitches. And the final out was uh, a grounder to second base to a guy. His name was Eddie Tola. Uh, first name Eddie, last name Tola, T-O-L-A. He throws it to Eli Bonello, who was playing first. And I can one of my best friends of all time was playing right field, Brad Caristori. We still talk about this game to this day. He came in from right field to make sure that the, you know, the throw wasn't wild or anything. And that's how the game ended. With, with Laura Burrell, guy on third, no outs. We managed to get the next three outs without him scoring. And we won 9-8 coming from behind. And it was actually 8 nothing at one time, but we scored some runs. Then I came in, and we ended up winning 9-8. And still, there were people... Later, who were saying, man, it's so da- such a dang shame, uh, you know, this All-Stars get into that game and they get blown out. Then anybody who stuck around is, yeah, they came back and won. That is still a story that is told around Leechburg. So that was probably the biggest moment. I, of course, was the winning pitcher. I was seen as the hero. I don't know. Um, I, all I knew was that just can't let any more runs get up on the board. Eight was plenty. Uh, that was my only. Uh, that was my only idea, and I think there's even a ten run rule. So if they would have scored like five more runs, it would have might have been a ten run rule, and it would just would have been ended right there. So my idea is, you know, just go in there's not very high expectations. It's Butchie who ruined everything. So I'll just come in here and see what you can do, and maybe that's the best attitude to have. And they just scored no more runs the uh, the rest of the game. Uh, I'm not saying I struck out anybody, everybody. I don't even know what my stats were for that game. I don't know. But we came back and won, and then we went on to we eventually we of course we did lose in a in a bigger tournament. But that District 26, which is the Alley Kiskey Valley, it's like Leechburg and Lower Borough, New Kensington, Terenum, Natrona Heights, Freeport. That area, if you look on a map, that kind, that area, that's the the district we're in, and we want it. We want it the next year too. With me on the team, uh, we want it two years in a row. That was not quite as dramatic. We want it quite easily, but I don't think neither, before or since. I don't think Leechburg uh, Senior Lake has won a title since then, and I was part of both of them. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? But that is probably my biggest sports moment. But I, I you know, and I just don't want to, it's already, this episode's really already long. But as a guy who um, never played sports past high school, I played intramurals in college, but nothing really to talk about there. And really did not start, start playing sports again until I started playing disc golf. I have a ton of great sports stories. Ton. Uh, just like I said, on a, a, a lot of, um, crazy baseball stories. Just just from Little League, Senior League in high school and um, playing in Legion Ball during the summer. Um, 
just a crazy amount of crazy baseball stories just from that, from like 11 years old to 18 years old. And then I have some crazy disc golf stories too. But that's my number one, I would say, moment of my sports career. And uh, like I said, though, I baseball's a team game. Uh, there's moments of individuality and then moments of team. But as the pitcher, you know, you can't do it without your fielders and everything. So, but it was great for me. And I, I have to admit, even though I was uh, was 14, going to be 15, winning that game, I bawled like a baby. Next question. Have you found any patterns for where law enforcement seems to do a better job on missing persons cases, such as East Coast versus West Coast, large cities versus small towns, red states versus blue states, or is it really just the luck of the draw? I see no patterns whatsoever. Uh, I I think that there have been some uh, disappearances where I think large police departments have done very good jobs, even though the, the disappearances might still be unsolved. I think that they probably did as much as they could given the circumstances. And certainly there are some disappearances in towns, little towns and cities with only a few people in the police department and law enforcement where they bungled it up. And then the opposite is also true. I I don't know. Um, I can't see any patterns. I'm not saying there are no patterns there, but it's, uh, you know, giving red blade state blue state. Of course, that's a political, uh, political terminology. I'm not touching that. I see nothing. No patterns whatsoever. There's, I would say there's just a general lack of understanding, a general lack of education. And when that is the situation everywhere, then you're going to get similar results everywhere. There may be that individual investigator here and there, but that has nothing to do, I think, with the atmosphere, the environment of the police department as a whole. I think it's just a a special person that you will run into once in a while who takes the time to realize that, you know what, I don't maybe understand all of this and I'm going to educate myself before I get into it. That takes time, but I know that there are police officers who do that. Most of them don't do that. But I don't I don't see any patterns. Uh, this is something, it's systemic. It's all over the United States and everywhere uh, it needs to improve. Officially, I think the final question, and it's a good one. How do you store data details of the missing persons in cases you feature? Do you have a system for data retrieval or cross-referencing? It's a combination of things. First of all, everybody should know that I take copious notes. I can go back and get the notes from the first time I ever spoke to Mary Lyle back in August of 2016. I have that doc with everything that I typed out from that conversation with her. I also have all of the notes even for people who didn't end up being on the program, who maybe decided they didn't want to be interviewed or they flaked on me. I still have all the notes for those conversations as well. Now, do I have some sort of fancy uh, Excel program or anything like that? No. Uh, But 
I have all the notes from those uh, disappearances. And for example, being that Rich McHale was just on the program within the last uh, two months at the beginning of uh, March, it was actually the first episode that came out once I moved over to Spotify. He and I hadn't talked in a while. But uh, we managed to finally come together. His book was coming out. I thought it was a good time to maybe get back in contact with him. He gets to talk about his book, sell some books, come on, be interviewed. And I think that's uh, a great episode. I think it was good timing there. But it was easy to get back into it for me. I mean, he's the one that's been living with this for so long. Me, since I spoke to him the last maybe in 2018 or something like that, I've covered 100-some disappearances. But it was easy for me to jump back into it. Why? Because I had taken all of those notes back when we first spoke. I took notes when I spoke to Mark's mother, Maureen, back in the day. I, of course, had my experience talking to my ex-girlfriend. I'm not going to say her name. But she had experience. I had notes from that. So it was easy for me to just kind of start reading again and kind of refreshing my memory. And on top of everything else... Uh, as many of the listeners know, my mind goes well with this. As I've said many times, I'm not a very good manager of people. I had a chance to manage a couple 7-Elevens when I worked in Las Vegas. Horrible at it. I have a hard time managing people's own uh, wants and desires and moods and, and all of those things. I'm not very good at that. I don't think I would be a very good general in the military or anything like that. But you give me a lot of information and I can keep it pretty straight, whether in a file or in my head. And where I'm going with this is I think the listeners know that, especially like during the live show, that I can recall disappearances and facts you show me the name of a, a person, the, any of these 250 missing people. Actually, it's more than that. And I can tell you kind of the general idea of what happened. And I might even be able to pick out the exact year that, it, that this disappearance occurred. Just kind of sticks with me. Even after 200 – of course, that's easy to do when you only have 50 disappearances. But when you get to 250 – I can still do that, and I even know that when I've spoken to some – the spoken at these colleges, even though I have the PowerPoint presentation that's up on the screen for them all to see, I could do that entire presentation without any notes. And even so, I still – even though I have like examples of disappearances for the, the man said kind of disappearances drug player plays a role it's a murder but and i have names of those those disappearances as examples i can name other ones that aren't even typed in the power presentation the powerpoint presentation i do that all the time so it's a combination of just keeping good notes when i talk to people and then having a pretty good memory. Now, I'll admit there's some you know minute details here and there that I may forget, but they're surely in the notes when I go back to them. For example, recently somebody brought up the disappearance of Juanita Nelson. Of course, know about her disappearance. I remember it. It's from California. It's from some years ago now, but she was going to a different high school because of some behavior problems. 
And she allegedly was going to school, never made it to school, never seen again. I remember that she had a boyfriend that was pretty shady. Uh, there were allegations regarding her father. I didn't end up talking to her father, and I, I'm going to be honest. I didn't think much of him. But something – so I can tell all of you that. But what I, one of the things I forgot, there was this issue of that backpack that she had complained to her grandmother about how her brother – emptied out everything from this backpack and took it and she was really ticked off about that that and she ended up calling her grandmother the issue though was the grandmother never brought this up until years later this is something that i had forgotten at the time could be important maybe but for just about any disappearance we've covered i can tell you like the general idea of the disappearance what seemingly happened on the day of the disappearance what was going on in that missing person's life, I can remember, uh, did they have an addiction? Did they have any mental health issues? What was going on? I just can pull that stuff right out of my head. Why is that? I don't know. It's just – I would just say that my brain goes well with remembering stuff like that and filing that stuff away. Some people can't do that, but they're all maybe way better at managing people and leading people and, and inspiring people and all of that. I'm just better with information. So how do you store de details? Uh, I have my laptops. I have a multitude of external drives that I use so to back up everything so I don't lose anything. All of the MP3 files and GarageBand files that I've made for all the episodes, they're all saved as well on one of these uh, external hard drives that I have are like one terabyte in size. Uh, do I have a system for data retrieval? I'm not that fancy yet. Data retrieval for me is just going back into my document files and finding what I'm looking for, cross-referencing. Cross-referencing is all done off the top of my head. Because I just kind of remember the the man said disappearances and, and disappearances that involve drugs. There's disappearances that are surely murders, but they can't be proven for one reason or another. Just it's just the way my mind works. And that officially ends all the questions for this episode. And that's the program. If you found my answers to the questions informative. Right now, while you are in this podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Densel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.